What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Pele leaned in and said something to Freddie. Don't let them change you. Keep working on what makes you different and what makes you special. It was great advice, but it caused me some problems. But what could change Freddie do? Soccer is going to explode and it's going to be around this kid. We were the Beatles. Everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. And with that came the expectation and with that came the pressure. New episodes of American Prodigy drop Tuesdays from Blue Wire Podcasts. What is Crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my co-host Adam Frommel today, but we do have a loaded podcast for you nevertheless, and that's Caps Lock Loaded. Uh, we are going to be rolling out our look-aheads for as many teams as we can before the start of the season. It'll probably leak into the regular season, but guests galore. They're coming, and it starts now. We're going to talk to Light Years Podcast, Sam Esfindiari today. Follow him on Twitter, at Sam Esfindiari. That's at Sam, E-S-F-A-N-D-I-A-R-I. After him, we are going to be have TJ McBride, fellow Blue Wire podcaster. He hosts the Rocky Mountain Hoops podcast. He's going to be coming on to talk about the Denver Nuggets. You can follow him on Twitter at TJ McBride, NBA, spelled exactly as it sounds. And then we wrap up with a look at the Oklahoma City Thunder's future. Super interesting team over the offseason. Um, I brought on Olivia uh, Punchall from Daily Thunder. She is a senior writer there. She's also co-host of the Crossbolts podcast over there. Follow her on Twitter at Olivia Punchall. Uh, that's P-A-N-C-H-A-L. Uh, I won't try to waste any more of your time. Let's get to this. Just a quick reminder, though, to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox wherever you're getting your podcasts. Even if you're not using iTunes, though, head over there, search us, throw us that five-star rating, throw us a five-star review. We are committed to continuing rolling out the content and appreciate every single rating and commenter and subscriber who downloads every episode that we get. So with without further delay, let's get to talking about first the Warriors, then the Nuggets, and then the Oklahoma City Thunder. Sam, thank you so much for coming on to talk some Warriors with me today. How are you doing? Good. I'm uh, watching the Raiders and the Jets. Um, my mood may change in the middle of this podcast, depending how the game ends. Just give me a heads up. <laughs> um, are they still losing? I did not look at the score since I tweeted about it when they were losing. The it's Raiders 24-21 Raiders, but it looks like the Jets – let's just say it's getting it's getting spicy that the Jets might get their first win. You felt like it was going to come. You never want to be the team that's giving them, giving them the win, though. <laughs> especially not when you're a team – oh, and they just took the lead. And especially not when you're a team who's 6-5 and five and in the playoff hunt. Right. Um, I didn't know where I thought for some reason I thought you were a Niners fan, not even a Raiders fan. I'm um I'm I'm fluid at this point. The the Raiders were the team I preferred growing up, but they've since moved. Right. So if they're not gonna be if they're not gonna be loyal to me, I don't feel like I need to be loyal to them. You know, maybe they'll get a little into a little Niners, but they still have a little bit of a soft spot for me. Um Warriors though is the team that we are going to talk about today. Uh 
I, I guess to just start here, what were your general impressions of the offseason? Just like of uh, the clay injury, obviously, that's just devastating. Like that absolutely sucks. But everything else they did, like how did you feel, you know, Wanamaker, Baysmore, they have Wiseman. Um, were you shocked at all that they ended up using the TPE? Did you think that do you think that Clay's injury was like the impetus behind them using that, or was that always going to be the play? Just kind of nutshelling what your impressions were. Okay, well, we're still not over the clay injury over here. It's um, it's just such a gut punch. To, to me, I think they had a realistic shot to win the title with Clay's return. Um, I wouldn't pick him as the favorite, but Vegas had him third or fourth most of the offseason. Uh, and I, I just look at everything they did in context of, man, if they had Clay back, I don't know if this team can beat the Lakers but I like their chances to be one of the best contenders to compete with them. So it's really hard to separate those two, uh, especially when you see someone like Marcus Saul and Aaron Baines uh, signed to other teams. I'm a hundred percent positive. Marcus Saul would have signed with the Warriors if they had clay. Uh, there's a lot of reasons he was interested. Namely the system fits his skill set better than any team in the NBA, you know, considering his passing his defense, all the things he does. But Kind of when Clay goes down, the Warriors are no longer a contender. They can be a fun team, maybe make noise in the playoffs, but you know, for, for they they're no longer going to be chasing the um, kind of vets who are looking to uh, get a ring category. Right. So, long story short, everything goes back to the Clay thing for me. With that said, I guess I'm going to make this really long. Uh, they did rebound better than expected in my opinion they at least have an interesting team it's Steph Curry and like 18 dudes with seven plus foot wingspans and athleticism so while like they're flawed players like we, we don't need to or maybe we will go into it like Andrew Wiggins certainly hasn't lived up to the number one pick uh Kelly Oubre fun player but you know uh you know he's he's not an all-star or anything like that like they it, it creates kind of it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic, I guess. On the clay injury, really quick, like I and I, I remember listening to the pod that you guys think you had a doctor on to talk about it, right? What is like I why and I was just I was cutting up video for a Twitter account of a sixty point performance. It was just the anniversary of that uh, four years, and I'm watching him on offense, and it feels like he should still be able to do a lot of the same things because it's not like maybe he's not cutting as quickly, but it, like he's not so reliant on burst and athleticism and so is there like more optimism that he can be something similar to the player that he was or is it just like you know it's been the ACL and the Achilles at this point we can't expect anything close to that when he does actually return um my excuse me my two thoughts are uh one I think his days of competing for all NBA defensive teams are gone so a huge part of Clay's value is not just the shooting. Duncan Robinson is an amazing shooter. He might shoot the ball as well as Clay, um, but he can't guard the the best wing on the right. other team. You know, like JJ Redick's an amazing shooter. Uh, he can't do that stuff. So, like, part of Clay's value is the fact that he's like one of the five or six best wing defenders, and he can shoot the ball like that. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing, my bigger concern is minutes. Uh, Clay had kind of been the Iron Man of the team. Right. And he pretty much always led the team in minutes per game. He was never a guy who really tired out and needed rest. You know, Steph has had his history with nagging injuries and Draymond to a degree too. And Clay's always been the guy. It's like 35, 40 minutes. 
will run a marathon in circles running off of screens and guard the opposing player's best perimeter player and be fine. Like never gets tired, none of that stuff. Now I'm wondering if he'll ever be able to play 30 minutes a game again. I think it's much more realistic that he has, let's just say a similar impact to what he was pre-injury, but he has to be like a 20 minute per game off the bench kind of guy. Kind of like, not the same player, but it felt like he retained a lot of his value in smaller bursts since his Achilles injury was Wesley Matthews is the guy that springs to mind for me. Yeah, exactly. Wesley Matthews uh, played in the mid-20s minutes per game. Um, if Clay can do what Clay is known to do for 25 minutes a game, that's great. But that's also kind of not an all-star and not like the the player we thought, you know, the player he was prior. Right. So it, it kind of recalibrates if the Warriors are going to contend again uh, before Steph inevitably retires with this cast, um, they need to find more talent because Clay can no longer be counted on to be that second option guy. Can, well, I don't know if I would say second option guy, but can James Wiseman be that infusion of talent? I think from you and Andy on the light years pod from what I gathered, like that was the pick you would have made if you were the Warriors, even with LaMelo on the board. Am I correct? Or would you have taken LaMelo? I would not have taken LaMelo. Um, but uh, there were some players a little farther down I was intrigued by, but I wouldn't have taken them at two. It was just so obvious that those uh, Edwards, Wiseman, and LaMelo were going one, two, three, that it would have almost been a waste of the number two to like reach for Isaac Okoro or something like that. Um, like I, wouldn't have, I would have been in favor of them maybe trading down. But with that said, uh, I'm fine with the Wiseman pick, and he's certainly intriguing. Uh, he's a mystery to me is really the best way to put it. Like, the physical skills, you know, jump off the page, but Mm -hmm. like, and I, and I've seen, you know, open run footage and stuff like that, but it's like, he played three games a year ago, you know, no one's like, I, what can I really take from Instagram uh, videos of his workouts? It's like, Oh wow. He's really athletic. So is, uh, so is Jan Vesely, right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I went there, but is, so do you think he gets a lot of rope in his rookie year with the Warriors to where they're actually going to lean on him? Or do you think if Kevon Looney's actually healthy, they seem to like Marquise Chris there? Um, I guess you can always go to Draymond at the five lineups if you want to, and maybe they sign another big at some point. Like, is Dwayne Dedman just inevitably going to be a Warrior? So do you, is there a chance that he's brought along more gradually, or are they really going to like try and baptism, baptize him by fire here? So Steve Kerr has tried to temper expectations. Um and kind of say, you know, like, we we think he has a chance to be amazing and blah, blah, blah. But, like, don't expect too much too soon. So he's trying to slow play him. And honestly, I think that's the right move. Uh, he's 19. He didn't play last year. You know, what's the worst that can come from slow playing him? He plays out of his mind and he ramp up his minutes, right? Right. Like, there's a real concerted effort to kind of, uh, temper expectations because they want him to be a key piece for for a long period of time, not like put all the pressure of the world on him so he you know busts so to say because everyone expects him to be David Robinson or something <laughs> and it's like very clear he's not you know and um, so so I do think there's a slow play aspect. I do agree with you. Uh, Looney is probably the guy that they would go to in key minutes versus good opponents. If he's fully healthy, there's a trust factor there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they do love Marquise Chris. They think they found something with him. They think they got him at the right time. There's a lot of, uh, you know, 
Phoenix picks him in the lottery. Uh, it didn't work out. He nearly crashed out of the league. And, you know, he ends up on the Warriors only at age 22. And they're like, you know, he's not a lost cause. He can do some good things. Uh, I'm curious to see if he's improved on defense. It's I, I know he's working on it the whole shutdown. I don't know how that translates, like, individual defensive work to games. So the, so the two notes for me is, one, it's weird about – the Warriors center rotation right now and maybe surprised me a little bit that they didn't like get an like I'm sure Mark Gasol was on their radar but once you know it's clear you're not getting him I thought maybe they would get someone else is they don't have any centers that have played like higher volume roles like even a healthy Kavon right. Rudy has never averaged 20 minutes a game um and then with Wiseman it feels like to me just the way the NBA is going that the key for him will be like the development of his shooting like his release point right now right. is high which is good but can he get um, and I thought, I think it was does it, Andy. Does it go in? <laughs> right, it doesn't go in, but can he get it off quicker too? Right. Um, to where it's like Jaron, uh, Andy made this comp to Jaron Jackson Jr. And I see a lot, the way they both score within the flow inside the arc and their ball skills right. in space. I get it. Like Jaron Jackson Jr. Has a low release, but he gets it off like so quick. And so if you can quicken that, it feels like that might be the best path. If he's actually shooting, um, gives you functional shooting anyway. Like that might be his like best path to being a really impactful player for this team. I'm gonna need to see his shooting against NBA defenses, um, but I'm not convinced he needs to speed up his shot because he's seven one. Like okay. he is, and he's got a seven seven wings. I mean, he's he physically is comparable to Rudy Gobert. Um, I don't think Rudy Gobert's issue with shooting is he can't get the you know like being contested at the peak of it. It's just that he can't shoot the ball. Right. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, and, you know, but no one's asking him to. So I'm, I'm curious if Wiseman, how that shot comes around. I'm actually, for me, the swing skill with him is going to be, if he can eventually switch on defense. Um, I think it's fairly, I think it's likely he'll be a good rim protector. He has all the athleticism and length in the world. He's shown ability to, you know, play and drop coverage and contest shots at the rim. Um, the Warriors also probably the thing they've done best developmentally has been big men, really, defensively. They've always kind of figured out how to make guys good in a scheme and that sort of thing. So I feel pretty confident he can be a – he'll develop into being a good rim protector. I'm not saying he's going to be great or anything, but, like, you know, a starting caliber rim protector. For me, it's the – if he can't switch, if he's one of those guys who just can only play drop coverage, you run into issues where you're kind of not playing him at the end of games. And uh, there's just, you know, he, he runs into kind of the same issues like Andrew Bogut and like a lot of these centers the Warriors had over the years are like, they're very useful, but like in specific matchups, you're, you're pulling them off of the court. Mm -hmm. 2020 has already reshaped how we work and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Well, Indeed is here to help. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of, of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it, and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Moving on to Andrew Wiggins, who, in my notes you said, seems like alarmingly important to this team now, even more so than he was before. <laughs> like, what's what are realistic expectations for him? Because it's not even just a matter of, like, okay, he can fit on offense and we'll deal with his defensive problems. Now that you don't have Clay, like, he's... Like and Kelly Oubre is there as well, but like Kelly Oubre is not really that great a defender either. It just seems like Andrew Wiggins is all of a sudden mission critical to what they do defensively, which is just terrifying to me. The yeah, the idea of them as defenders is better than the actuality at this point. Um, he was the player. I mean, the clay, I keep going back to the Clay thing, but like I was excited to see him play with Steph and Clay because I don't think he was he'll ever get a better role than that in the NBA, like in terms of covering up some of his deficiencies as a player and maybe the potential to maximize what he does do well. Mm -hmm. So losing clay hurts. I actually am not as concerned about his defense as I am about his offense. Um, He played really well defensively for the Warriors last year, really small sample, but um, the combination of Draymond and the coaching staff kind of on him got him to defend with consistency in a way that, you know, we didn't see very often in Minnesota. It's not like he couldn't defend in Minnesota. The issue was always kind of like taking possessions off, checking out of games, that sort of thing. But like in terms of when he felt engaged and wanting to defend, he was, again, not saying amazing, but like above average. He knew how to at least use his athleticism length and stuff to make things difficult. So, um, all the Warriors have been talking about is how they need to be a top 10 defense. Wow. Uh, it's putting a lot of pressure on uh, Draymond, but their, their entire philosophy is basically if we can defend and force turnovers and get out and run, we can be probably, we can probably be a playoff team. If we can do those two things, the half court's going to be a work in progress because there's no one who can shoot the ball with any sort of consistency outside of Steph Curry. Right. Um, so, so their big thing is it's in some ways it feels like a Don Nelson team where it's like, we're going to use our athleticism and wingspan to try to cause havoc and get out and run and kind of punt the fact that, you know, it's, it's not 2018 where they can do like a bazillion different creative things in the half court because they have all the talent in the world. Do you like Wiggins's fit with this team better than Ubre's, who I think overall, not as, I don't feel like he's not as strong as Wiggins, uh, especially those swole pitchers, I guess we're getting on Twitter lately, but his length, like he's been, and I don't think he's a good defender, but he's more disruptive with his length. Yeah. Um, and he shot better on, look, small sample for Wiggins, but 31, and didn't play fairly right. uh, with Steph, 31.7% on catch and shoot threes. Kelly Ubre Jr. was closer to 35%. Both of those are like horrific numbers relative to catch and shoot threes, and maybe their right. shot quality goes up. But I'm just wondering, of the two, like who are you just higher on fit wise for this this roster? You know, I go back and forth on this one. I'm kind of uh, they're kind of opposites um, in the sense of um, one's an extreme extrovert, like Kelly Oubre is already a fan favorite because he just cannot like stop saying the perfect things that fans want to hear in front of the camera at all times. You're right. just, He's very outgoing and constantly talking about how hard they're going to play and all that sort of stuff. So fans love him. Andrew Wiggins is just an introverted guy, like comes across really nice. But like, you know, if if he didn't have to do an interview, he never would is the impression I get. 
Um, and then, like, uh, as players, uh, Steve Kerr did mention he thinks he's going to use Kelly Oubre on ball defensively more. So there's this, there's this idea that, like, Kelly Oubre is very uh, aggressive. Like, he, he, he's high energy, high motor. Um, but maybe can get lost if you're asking him to do too much. So it's a it's a better situation if you're just like, I just want you to guard, uh, you know, whatever, the, the point guard. Just just follow him around, you know, like just mirror him. Don't even think about switching and doing, um, you know, uh, dealing with cutters on the weak side or stuff like that, which takes like a lot more awareness. It's a little more complicated. Um so I think there's going to be some of that with Ubre, whereas I think they're really trying to challenge Wiggins to take on a more uh, cerebral role, and we'll see if that works. But I, given between the two, it does make sense. I, in Wiggins' defense, and I don't ever defend Andrew Wiggins, just sure. so you know, but like having a consistent coach and culture at this point, like even if you don't necessarily right. like Steve Kerr, they just they churned through approaches and coaches and directions and players and during his time in Minnesota. Right. And maybe just being with the Warriors now where it's the same environment for, you know, another season, like after having a partial season there, like maybe that ends up helping. Um, particularly, if, like you said, if he was that much better on defense for them at the tail end of the year. Yeah, and I mean, that's for me, everything with the Warriors is a gamble on their culture. Um, you know, Andrew Wiggins' play through the first five years of that NBA career is what it is. Mostly disappointing, flashes of, you know, some real talent, but like more often than not, you kind of see a player who looks like they're going through the motions and not very interested. Um, the Warriors seem to believe that in their culture, with their coaching staff, with their leadership, you know, he's never played with someone like Steph Curry or, or Draymond Green. Um, yeah, maybe Jimmy Butler and Draymond have some similarities, but uh, in terms of their mentality. But yeah, I mean, there's this, there's a belief that they can get the most out of him. I, I could see it. I just don't know what most out of him means. You know, you mentioned Draymond. Is it like, uh, if you had to, it feels like there might be more pressure. I know people probably gravitate towards Steph because they're like, oh, can he uplift this team and yada, yada, yada. Like, that's like a discourse I just try not to even acknowledge. But it feels like after the year that Draymond had, he might have more pressure on him than anyone else, like on the roster right now, because it feels like we're all of a sudden wondering was last year really his, I just don't give a fuck, like gap year, or is it a sign of actual regression? And do you have like a take one way or the other on that? Again, um, the Warriors would tell you all that time off did wonder for those players because of how many games they played over the previous five years and the toll that takes on every human not named LeBron James. So um, who apparently, you know, general biology doesn't apply to him, but whatever. Uh, when you can uh, spend gonna... seven figures a year on uh, preserving your yeah. body, I think that probably helps a little bit too. It, it does. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so the... So I don't know. I, I want to see him is basically what it comes down to for me. Like he he did have a few throwback games last year, like Christmas Day versus the Rockets is probably the only one anyone uh, outside of like the Bay Area would remember. I was um, exact when I said like with the exception of a few, that was like the exact yeah. game that's breaking to well, my mind. I think that was also the most he scored like 22 or 25 points. I don't think he got over 20 in a single game the, the rest of the season. Like in general, he's not a scorer, but. Um, yeah, he did look like old, Dray you know, like peak Draymond Green in that specific game. So it is in there, but I, I'm curious um, what this layoff did for him because he was the one who was the most banged up. 
Like, uh, well, okay, I take it back. Technically, Clay was the most banged up with the torn right. ACL. But, uh, but Draymond, over the previous few years, because he played a big man role, I mean, it, was, it wasn't just one thing. It was lower back, shoulder, knees, all of them just ailing. He would, he would say a lot of that led to a shot falling off. But you could just see it when he played, too. A lot of, like, I'm not going to physically apply myself until the end of the game because I don't want to beat up my back any more than I have all year. So I'm just curious what he looks like. He he barely played last year, and he hasn't really played in nine months at this point. Right. So we should see something that you know kind of looks like the player that uh, you know the, the player that got famous and made the All Star team. But we'll see. I think what he probably has going for him is I don't know why he feels like he's older than he is, but he's thirty. Like that's not ancient. And then the other, the other thing was, and you know, I don't know how much stock people place in this, but in his twenty five hundred plus possession sample size, the Warriors were like a league average defense with him on the court still last year, and their transition defense was fantastic. And so if that's like a banged up, disengaged Draymond, like you have to think that I don't actually know what the defensive ceiling of this team is given the rest of the personnel. But you have to at least, I would think, feel semi-confident that as long as he's healthy, he should be able to have like a pretty huge impact on their their defensive performance specifically. Yeah, um, actually, you bring up uh, an interesting point. I made this on on my podcast, but um, the 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 defense once they got Wiggins again, we're talking twelve to fifteen games. When there was Wiggins and Draymond on the floor at the same time, it was really good. Now, I highly doubt. Uh, Portland, Miami, the Lakers, the teams that are playing were giving you their A plus effort at that point in the season. Like they right. knew the Warriors was an easy win at that point, but they looked night and day different. He definitely did not like D'Angelo Russell um, because of defense. And, uh, and a lot of that just frustrated Draymond. If you go back and watch uh, a January game against the Nuggets, it was on TNT. The Warriors were about to win that game, and then the Nuggets came back late to win it. You could see Draymond just flipping out at D'Lo because, like, it was the fourth quarter. The Warriors had the lead, and all they needed to do was get a few stops, and he was playing with pickup pick up basketball, lackadaisical energy on defense, and he just Draymond just letting him hear it like, dude, I need you to play defense for two minutes. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Like, that sort of, like, 15 billion profanity, whatever, in the middle there. So – that's kind of why there's belief that Wiggins could work because at least he'll follow someone like Draymond's lead and play defense, or at least that's the hope. Um, and yeah, to your point, even though he had a terrible season, they were competent on defense with him on the floor, and that's with largely G-leaguers around him. Right. And they were <laughs> disgusting when he was off the floor. So, I, I mean, he still is one of the best defensive anchors in the NBA, even if it doesn't show up uh, – in the highlight plays the way it used to when he was younger. Yeah, the I didn't even think to look at that. And it was a sub-200 possession sample size, but uh, Draymond and Wiggins on the court, Warriors defensive rating in the 82nd percentile, um, which is ridiculously good. And the defensive rebounding during those minutes was surprisingly incredible. So I guess that's something to look toward. Who's the, though, like, looking at last year's roster, who's, like, the non-marquee holdover, like, you know, not Draymond, not Andrew Wiggins, that you're just most interested in seeing with this team or think that can actually make an impact to what's a better team? Because I think it's fun to talk about, you know, Eric Paschal or uh, Marquis Chris, like, oh, they showed some stuff, but like the Warriors were just terrible last year. And so how do you, how does that translate to a team that has 
tempered expectations now, but actual expectations. I guess I'm most curious for Jordan Poole. Okay. Jordan Poole came on at the end of last year again. Players playing well on you know garbage teams at the end of a season is never really like the. Uh, you always want to be careful with that sort of stuff, right? Um, right. But I feel like uh, he played a lot better when they moved him to point guard. And if he can play well as kind of a heat check guy, because that's what he is, um, off the bench behind Steph, that could really help this team. Because this team is lacking shooting and kind of shot creation. And he's the most likely source of it off of the bench. Brad Wanamaker is a solid veteran. That's not his game. Right. Right. Um, Kent Bazemore, another very solid veteran, not the guy who's going to, you know, pull up off a high pick and roll from 27 feet. Not his game. So I think he's the most interesting because um, he can really help them and kind of solidify their their bench units. When I'm looking at this Warriors team right now, I'm like, this team will probably play winning basketball and steps on the floor. And when he's off the floor, they will just be bleeding leads. It'll be like one of those. Um, like like 2017 MVP Westbrook type of seasons where it's like, well, when they're on, he was on the floor. <laughs> anytime he sat, the like point plus minus differential was like 20 the other direction, right. that type of thing. Um, so if if someone like Jordan Poole, and I'm not saying he will, uh, if he can be kind of that like six man type, that can go a long way in, in making the team better. So I'm most curious to see him. He did. I looked up like. In anticipation of this pod, he shot over 60% on off the dribble two point jumpers after the All Star break. So, sub 10 game sample size. But, like, yes. to have that level of shot creation there, I don't, I think I would agree with you. Where, like, I don't know who else it's, like, who else is it aside from, in theory, Wiggins and Stephen Curry who can generate their own shots on this team? Like, Eric Pascal also was probably the talk of the season for them last year. He, he had a really good rookie year. He made the, uh, rookie first team. Um, and he's kind of a, you know, a combo forward who wants to just like ISO in the mid post and, and get to the rim. And so he could do some of that stuff, but like, it's not the same as having a guard who can come off the high pick and roll behind the three point line. Right. right. So, um, I, th- I think, I also kind of think Pascal will probably be the same player he was last year. So it's not so much taking a step as much as, his role is going to get, he's going to do the same thing just in 20 minutes a game instead of 35. He seems like the player that might, be, uh, I guess it would be him or Jordan Poole, but that might be most important during the however many minutes per game this ends up being where you don't have Steph yeah. or Dre on the court. Like just knowing that you can have like Pascal in the post is just a, a huge option because there's just so right. little shot creation on this team outside of their main guys. And, and that's that's what it's going to be. So that's why I was kind of curious about Jordan Poole because Pascal will be able to do some. He already showed he could do that stuff last year, and he'll continue to do it this year. Um, but if they could get a guard, kind of the player who sets up the play to be able to put pressure on our defense, that'll go a long way because we know we know Steph will do that when he's on the floor. But when Steph's off the floor, it's I don't know what's going to happen really. Is there any chance because like Minnesota tried this at the beginning of? last season which feels like a decade ago that they try to put him in that role where you're seeing him with a lot of minutes independent of Steph and Draymond and maybe he's running maybe you know I don't know how much of this will be part of the Warriors identity now but if you're just having Andrew Riggins what uh, excuse me run pick and rolls because it seemed to work out for a time in Minnesota at least of the beginning of last year 
Can you say, can you say uh, the second part one more time? Is there like a chance where maybe, and I don't know how much of this will be part of the Warriors' identity, but is there a chance we see maybe Wiggins in those no Draymond, no Curry minutes, again, however short they are? Oh, could- definitely, yeah. Um, either Wiggins or Ubre, they are both 20-point-per-game scorers. Whether they should be is a different question, but like they're guys <laughs> who can generate some offense, right? Right. I would, uh said he's going to start both of them. Um, I just don't think the team has enough talent for him to like be able to be super cute by putting one of his players off the bench as like a six man, but he's planning to start both of them. But I would be shocked if there wasn't a stagger to have at least one of them with the bench unit, be it Wiggins or Oubre. He's going to, he's going to experiment with both. I don't know which way is the better way to go, to be honest. So that, and this is probably too early. Like I think even five games into the season for this specific team, it's really to ask this question, but how do you sort of see the row, the rotation shaking out. If we assume, I'm assuming the starting five is going to be Ubre, Wiggins, Steph, Draymond, and then Big to be named soon, I guess. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and Steve Kerr confirmed that he's going to at minimum try those four, uh, and then if he finds out, like, man, it's just it makes more sense to have Ubre come off the bench as like a super jolt of energy for rotations. Maybe he makes that change, mm-hmm. but he, he's he's planning to start with. Uh, you know, the four you mentioned plus center to be named later. Um, they're they're going to start camp tomorrow, so I think we'll get a better idea then. I actually think they'll probably start Marquise Chris. Okay. Uh, it appears that – I don't know. The Warriors had two players test positive for COVID. Pretty reasonable chance that Wiseman's one of them because he's the only player who hasn't had media availability in the first week. Yeah, it gets That's pretty just, evident who these players yeah, probably are when they're... We will, we will know by tomorrow, Monday. Um, uh, even with that said, I think Kerr really wants to protect him. Like, the last thing he wants to do is have him opening night, you know, like, checking Kevin Durant and then Giannis the following game and then, like, Anthony Davis. Like, that's just setting the kid up for a little failure, right? Right. Particularly considering he didn't get summer league. And this this kind of... I didn't really think about this till a week ago. He was drafted the 18th of November, the season starts the 22nd of December. Like, and they haven't even had an official team practice yet. Like, it's just, it's it's unfair to expect rookies to. And his last actual game was over a year yeah. ago. It was in November. Yeah, exactly. If the Warriors were not interested in making the playoffs and, like, wanted to rack up losses, they would probably start Wiseman and be, like, developmental year, right? But that's not what they're, that's not what they're thinking um, as long as Steph is healthy. So, I think um, they'll probably start with Marquise Chris. Looney will probably be the guy who closes. And Wiseman will get minutes in between. It'll be like the standard weird thing the Warriors have done in the past where you're like, they play three or four centers, 15-ish minutes a game. Um, and I think on the on the wings, obviously, Bazemore is going to get a lot of minutes just because he's a reliable vet. You know what you're getting from him. You know he'll defend and force turnovers and kind of play within the flow of the offense um and Wanamaker kind of a similar concept with the guard position Pascal will play behind Draymond and then it's going to be interesting to see you know will Jordan Poole establish himself as like a six-man scorer that they need um will it be Damian Lee you know the coaching staff loves Damian Lee he was again fine as a kind of a backup guard with energy and everything like they were asking him to be like the second leading scorer by middle of the season, which is probably too much for Damian Lee. But if you're talking about the ninth man, it's not so bad, right? Right. So 
do you get I think it's when you're looking at like how the top of that rotation is going to shake out? Like, yes, there's Steph, so technically spacing doesn't matter. But are you like at all concerned to the point where like maybe the Warriors should try playing not to start, but like you know Steph and Brad Wanamaker in the backcourt feels like it could make a ton of sense for some stretches because Wanamaker. Right. Uh, shot almost 50% on catch-and-shoot threes last year in Boston. He, could, he might be the second-best shooter on the team. Which is um, terrifying notion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it kind of speaks to... I was playing with the numbers. If Steph takes 12 threes a game and hits over 40%, which he probably will in both cases, um, and the rest of the team shoots 33%, and they take, let's just say, 35 a game, which is league average, mm-hmm. they come out to league average three-point percentage, even with Steph hitting an absurd volume of threes. So that kind of speaks to, I think they need, someone on this team has to have that, you know, that year where they shoot 38% from three, you know, the 33, 34% shooter who just gets really hot. Like maybe it's Kelly Oubre, right? Yeah. I guess it could be Ken Bazemore. Yeah. He's been all over the place too. One of those dudes that they're, maybe it's Eric Paschal. They're banking on, they have a bunch of hyper athletic guys who profile as low 30% three point shooters. They need one of them to, you know, not, not be Clay Thompson. Cause that just won't happen. Right. But like be someone who can hit catch and shoots at a, at a pretty uh, consistent clip. So let's say they're in a game that matters. It's crunch time. Uh, is the, is the lineup in those minutes the same as what you're anticipating it to be as the starting five, where it's basically those four players plus Chris in the middle, or do you see them playing with that a little bit more? I think they'll play with it. I could see because of Ubre and Wiggins size, they could put Pascal in there and go with the small ball lineup. You'd literally have Steph and four dudes who are six, seven with seven plus wingspans. So I mean, they've liked to do it in the past. The talent level is slightly different than, uh, you know, Andre Goodall, Clay Thompson, and Kevin Durant. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just but, a little uh, different. But conceptually, they could do that, particularly if you have a bunch of size on the wings, you can get away with maybe a little less size inside. Um, they could also go with Looney. They know Looney. Looney's the best defensive big they have if, uh, outside of Draymond. So they could go that route. Um, I think they'll play with it, to be honest. They could even go hyper small. They could put uber at the four and they could put wanamaker in there um and go with like steph wanamaker wiggins Ubre, draymond uh i i actually i think i will see them close with draymond at center a lot because they can they can be extremely athletic and fast yeah i mean he barely played there last year obviously the circumstances didn't call for it but that still seems like their pathway to like having insofar as they can have a cheat code lineup like the draymond at right. the five still feels like their path there it's it's going to be a pain for opposing teams because the pace when they go Draymond at five is fastest in the NBA, and uh, they should be able to take you know take advantage of the athleticism. It doesn't change the shooting flaws they have and like some of the other flaws they'll probably have on defense because you know even if those guys are hyper athletic, they're not Andre Iguodala or Clay Thompson. Um, but what I was gonna what I was gonna throw in there is yeah the the other reason they didn't use Draymond at five much last year was wear and tear. It's right. like Look, we're not making the playoffs. Do we really need to destroy his body in a lost year or two? <laughs> and like the, they've always seemed like a little reticent, even during like their dynasty heyday, to like put him there for too much during the regular season. I think Steve Kerr hates versatility. Kerr, oh, sorry, <laughs> you know he loves versatility. I think he's 
I think he's always found it. He he believes it's more effective in small doses to catch teams off guard. Mm-hmm. Like he would be someone who took real like I don't want to say joy, but like validation out of how the Rockets just got utterly destroyed by the Lakers by going all in on small ball. He's like, he would be someone who says, hey, PJ's excellent as a small ball center, but if you're going to try to use him for 48 minutes, you're going to wear him down and someone like Anthony Davis is going to figure that out. So I think what happened to the Rockets validates Kerr's perspective, which is we want to use this for quick punches and maybe we extend it in specific matchups, but in general, I don't want Draymond guarding fives for 40 minutes a game because he'll just start becoming less effective. His body will break down. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Is there like a lineup? That like a quirkier lineup that you're hoping they test out at some point this season. Season maybe it's one that like Kerr wouldn't prefer to trot out just based off because based off their personnel, it feels like they could. I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing, but like so much uncertainty on the roster, it feels like you could mix and match a bunch of different combinations just to throw it out there and be like, hey, does this does this work? I, I do think the small ball lineup with Wiggins and Ubre and maybe Pascal or maybe Bazemore could be really fun. Okay. Um, I keep thinking. First off, they're leaning into the We Believe thing with the Oakland City Knights jerseys, which are basically a knockoff of the ones that like the Baron Davis We Believe teams wore. Um, they're kind of they're leaning into it because like this team has a better chance of mirroring that team than mirroring the title teams of the past, right? Right. Um, on the to tie into that, those teams were uh, best known for going small. Mm-hmm. and really causing havoc and being athletic in transition. So just any combination that can kind of get them really running and, you know, just causing a bunch of turnovers could be a lot of fun to watch. Cause like I said, if they get stuck playing half court basketball with Steph being trapped and like no one guarding Wiggins and Draymond behind the three point line and that stuff, it could get really ugly really quick. If they're like in a spot where maybe they're playing better than expected, like closer to the trade deadline, or like they're very firmly entrenched in the you know the top five um, sure. race in the West, could you see them making a significant move midseason? Because we know they're sitting on the assets, the Minnesota pick, they have um, James Wiseman still, or is that something, especially following Clay's injury, that if it actually happens, is just far more likely to happen after this year when they can sort of reevaluate where they're headed after actually getting this full season to look at. So two thoughts there. I think they are only they're they're oddly kind of like the Boston Celtics at this point with their like ability to compete for the playoffs, but also having like the other teams 
probable high lottery picks. They can play both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about like the the Celtics teams with like Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley, where you're like they're not a contender, but they're certainly good enough to make the playoffs. Right, and like you know, uh, but, but like but you but like those Nets picks were really what the fan yeah. base was excited about, and it you know turned out right because Jason Tatum is very good. Um, right, but um. So I don't think they're interested in moving the Wolves pick unless it nets a young star. The clay injury makes makes it even tougher for them to move it because I don't think there's belief that clay will be an all-star when he comes back. I think there's hope that he'll be a good player at best. So they really can't move that Wolves pick unless they're netting kind of an impact guy who's younger. Like they, they're not going to move – Let's put it this way. They're not going to move the net or sorry. I said Nets pick. Wow. I've totally messed up. They're not moving the Wolves pick for like uh, Marcus Smart or Robert Covington, uh, two excellent players who objectively help you win games. But like you only trade like a top 10 pick for one of those guys. If you really think that's going to put you over the top and is Robert Covington going to make them win a title? No, he's going to help them win a couple more games, right? Right. So and there's and it, and it depends on I guess how you value the pick, but like I don't think the Timberwolves are gonna be very good this year. So I don't know why you would tr- like yeah there has to be other moving pieces, but I don't know why you would trade it for anything short of a star. I'm just curious if like and I'm not saying these guys would be gettable, but like if Bradley Beal or James Harden, let's say he promises to show up to practice well, with those, them. Those are stars though. So that's but you said young stars. So I'm like Bradley Beal's still young, yeah. I guess so that's an easier call. But like James Harden is 31, 32. 31, yeah. Like, is that a move you still make? I guess you kind of have to, but I'm like, you mentioned it with the clay thing. Are you, are they like more concerned now with sort of bridging it internally from this error to the next one um, because of that clay Thompson injury where it's like, we actually need this infusion of, of youth to play the long games. We're just not completely barren. Yeah. So I guess I should, I guess I should amend that. If you could get James Harden, you do it because he's still a top five player and you know, you should be able to build a, a title contender with Steph and James Harden. If you can't, that's kind of on you. It's not on like their talent. Like that's a, it's a pretty damn good starting point. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So, but, but my point is on the Wolves pick superstar or young star who may become a superstar are probably the only type of moves they're going to engage that pick with. If clay was back, they may have been more interested in act in trying to acquire someone like a Marcus Smart, who's like the perfect role player for a contender, who's gonna you know like in the same capacity that like Andre Iguodala was, right? Yeah, uh, Marcus Smart also shot above forty percent on pull up threes last year, so he might have been one of the better shooters on this team. Looking at right? the roster, <laughs> uh, is it more? Is it like it's not? And I didn't I didn't even write down a question about Steph because I feel like if it's if he's healthy, like he should just be this known quantity. He's a top five, top three player easily. And yet he still sort of has like this baggage of, well, can he really uplift a team that's suboptimal around him? And I think I'm not curious to see if he can, because I think all the evidence with the way he's uplifted stars like drastically just proves that uh, he will. But is it wrong to be like, I don't know the way to phrase it, like morbidly curious about Steph, like now getting another chance to run with a suboptimal supporting cast that he was supposed to have last year, just to not to just quiet doubters, but just to really see it because he's always been, I don't know if marginalized is the right word, but there's always been like other shadows next to him because they've had all these stars. So his game's so different. Like he can be the best player on the floor without touching the ball. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, it's, 
I mean, I go back to the two, the 2015 finals are probably the best example of his game was so ahead of its time that they didn't know how to parse the finals MVP. And if you like go back and look at it, like, okay, if you want to say LeBron was the finals MVP, I can accept that because that's just a different argument. But to give it to Iguodala, who basically just hit open shots that were generated because Steph was triple teamed. Like, go go rewatch the footage. Andre Godala has five seconds to kind of, you know, set up his shot in the corner. And he hit him. And he was amazing on defense, of course, too. Uh, but, like, you know, it's that was all because of Steph, right? right. Like, Steph was drawing the double teams. The, the Cavs were kind of the first team to really blitz him and kind of get the ball out of his hands and dare other people. So um, there's always been kind of a misunderstanding because, especially because, like, when he gets hot, you know, it's, it's one of the best shows you can see. So like him affecting the game by not making shots is a very indirect thing. Right. Uh, to your broader point, I just want to see him stay healthy. That's like fair. my, my concerns with him are not that he can uplift this roster. Like he, if you remember the 2012, 13 warriors, uh, upset Denver and pushed the Spurs to six games. Right. Um, everyone was like, Oh, Jared Jack's so good for them. Jared Jack leaves, never heard from again. You go rewatch it, all of a sudden you start realizing it's like, well, yes, Jared Jack can hit a pull-up jumper when everyone's paying attention to Steph. But, like, put him on a team where he has to kind of run the show, it's not quite the same thing. So um, I I do think Steph is 100% capable. I'm just curious. He's 32. He's just, at this point, there's no other way to parse it other than say, like, he picks up a lot of nagging injuries. And yeah. I don't know if this is encouraging or discouraging, but at least it doesn't feel like it's it, – it seemed like way back when the ankles could be like this chronic issue. But now he's like reached the Anthony Davis level where it's like, oh, it's a thigh. It's his right hand. Yeah, it could right. be his ankle. It's his MCL. So the fact that they're like not necessarily directly connected, although maybe some of them are, like is that like more encouraging or is it just like it doesn't even matter because he's been like so banged up in all these different years? I don't think it matters. It's just like there's – if you want to criticize Steph relative to the other top five or six players in the NBA, the criticism is his durability. It just is. Like, I think he's a better player than James Harden, in my opinion. But James Harden is a tank. He, <laughs> he plays through everything. He, you know, like you can pencil him in for 75 games or basically like, like he'll sit a couple games here or there with something, but like, he's going to play the full season. Right. He's going to play heavy minutes. You don't have to worry about it. with Steph. It's he gets knocked and something's bruised up. And there's just, there is a, a durability concern with him. That's unique to him that I don't even think applies to Kawhi. Kawhi has all the load management stuff. And like, it's, it's worrisome for a different reason. But when he's on the floor, he's still a very physically imposing player because of his size and his strength and everything. Um, and that's just a different thing with Steph. You know, he can get beat up. He can get kind of – he can lose – you know, he can, he can get hurt a lot easier than other guys, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. So looking at everything, and like you can assume whatever you want if you think they're going to lose games to injury, if you think there's a major move. Like what's a realistic win total and Western Conference finish? And if you haven't given like thought to what the – like wins are in a 72 game season. I can, I have a conversion thing set up really quickly for that. If you want to do it over 82 games. Well, so Vegas, the, the books I saw last have them at 36 and a half, um, which is a little above 500 and had them at the eight seed. 
I don't think that's unfair. I think if they get good health, they could push to four. Uh, I think if they get bad health, they could also fall out of the playoffs. Right. There's very little margin for error with this team. If you could tell me Steph's going to play 70 out of 72 teams, I like their chances to push into that four to six range. If you tell me he's going to miss 10 games, now I'm like, mm, they're kind of in a dog fight for the eight seed. <laughs> you know, like that's kind of like, and then if you tell me he's going to miss 20 games, I'm like, yeah, let's just make it 50 and, and done for <laughs> two top 10 picks, you know, that type right. of thing. So um, it really comes down to uh, his durability for me. I do think they're going to start slow um, because Steph is in amazing shape right now. He's been working, like he's ready to go. He hasn't played with any of these guys. And they're kind of putting a new roster together. You know, like how he played one game with Wiggins. He's played zero games with Oubre. Uh, he played a game. Last time he, Bazemore was his team, it was like two presidential cycles ago. <laughs> um, you know, like there's just like a lot of moving pieces. So I would not be surprised if they got like destroyed on Christmas by the Bucks, who like will be a machine. And like, we know who the Bucks are, right? right? Like there's, there's very like, okay, they have to integrate Drew Holiday. That's one player they're integrating to a team who knows how to play with each other, right? Right. And so, you're not so I would not be surprised if the Warriors started slow, and then um, if they if they stay healthy, you know, fifteen game, you know, maybe they start six and eight, and then they go on like a a, a run where they win like twelve out of fifteen or something like that. You know, those that's kind of how I see the season breaking out for them uh, in a pot. If you know, if, if we're being optimistic, I think. Getting into the top four conversation is just a matter of for them. When I look at them, I guess maybe I'm like so high on Steph and kind of confident that Draymond will come back. It feels like they could be a legitimate like top four seed where that's not like their ceiling. Like, may I could right. map out scenarios of anything in the West right now because I don't think the Lakers or Clippers are going to care about what happens in the regular season, really. Sure. It's like I could map out a path to the Warriors getting two. But it doesn't feel unrealistic to if you said Steph is healthy and whatever constitute that is it is it playing sixty seven of seventy two whatever if he's healthy and Draymond is close to Draymond like it feels like and he's healthy too right, right. <laughs> it feels like top four is like a realistic projection but they have a higher range of outcomes because their floor is technically lower than a lot of these other really good teams yeah I mean the the reality of the matter is you're you're not really concerned that Nikola Jokic is going to get hurt you're not concerned that. Uh, James Harden's going to get hurt. He might not be in Houston next week, but, um, <laughs> you know, like uh, you're not concerned that um, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert won't get hurt. And those teams, we know how good they are. Like there's a baseline that we know they can achieve. And they've, they've proven a level of durability year in, year out that like, you know, it's fair to question with the Warriors at this point. It's fair. You know, you you can you can easily say, hey, man, they just went to five straight finals. Give them a year off. You could also say they've played a lot of basketball and maybe we're reaching the point in their career where like expecting them to play 90% of games uh, with a certain level of uh, performance is just unrealistic. So I I'm with you. They could go either. It feels like their range is broader, even though, you know, Utah, for example, is a Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell injury away from falling off too. Yeah. So it's like just a matter of every team or most teams are like that one injury away from plummeting, but the Warriors scenario, worst case scenario feels just we've more just, likely. Yeah. We've just seen that the Warriors key players actually go through that last year and, you know, the previous couple of years. So it's easier to like wrap our heads around. 
Uh, especially because it if like it happened where it wasn't just one of them, where it was like Steph right. and KD at once, and then it's KD and Clay. Like you had superstars to spare, but like you ended up needing having those four superstars. Right, right. Um, just to put a bow on this, is there anything that we didn't touch upon that you wanted to talk about? Something that's just undercovered about this team heading into the season? Not really. I, 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 I just feel like we. Knew. I just want to see them healthy. That's really all I'm at with them. Like I, I think they will be a playoff team if they stay healthy, and I think they can be an actually a very fun team who people will really start paying attention to a midseason when they start making a little noise or something. So it really all comes down to health for them. Um, obviously I have my own personal biases here, but like, I would like to see Steph kind of put together one more full year of health and just kind of remind everyone of how good he is and kind of how fun it is to have him in the mix in, in this league. You know, he's one of the three or four most exciting players to watch. And it's, it's kind of a bummer when he's out injured or like, we don't get to see him play the same way. It's like a bummer. If, you know, we didn't get to see KD last year yep. or like LeBron missed most of the year before, or, you know, insert any of those guys who kind of make you stop the channel anytime you're flipping through. There is, if he's healthy and narrative is a big part of this, whether anyone likes it or not, Sure. There's like a stage set for him to get his third MVP award if he stays healthy because people are going to love the narrative of him uplifting this cast and not having KD's not there this time and Clay's injured. So like if he has like that full healthy season, that's a conversation where if you told me Steph played in 67 games this year, let's put or 65, right, right, I would say is- he finishes top three in MVP without question. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I think that Vegas has Luca as the most likely. And I mean, I would also say it, it feels like Luca's probably going to win the MVP this year. It's just like next guy up. He, no voter for T because Giannis is like, yeah, even yeah, if he's so there, like, like no one's going to vote for him. Giannis, like I can't imagine what Giannis can do this year to get a third straight one, like average 40. Like LeBron will be fuming if Giannis gets a third straight MVP. Yeah. Award. LeBron, um, LeBron would have a case just based off of the the legacy aspect, but I kind of agree with you. Um, I don't think we're going to see the Lakers try until like post Valentine's Day. Yeah, so. it seems like Davis would be the more if there's going to be one of the two to win it, it'd be Davis just because maybe he'll care or play more during the regular season at this point. Yeah, so I mean, you're, you do bring up a good point. I do think Steph has a good shot at winning the MVP if he just stays healthy. He was, this blew up in my face, he was my last season MVP pick. So it was before he got injured. I thought that was going to be that type of season. So um, I'm with you, though. But just having him healthy, healthy Draymond, and then just Kelly Oubre Jr.'s existence, like that's a recipe for watchability. So I'm hoping this team stays healthy as well as an impartial observer. Uh, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time, Sam. This was this was really great. Uh, I don't know if anyone's listening to this and doesn't listen to the Light Years pod or follow Sam on Twitter. Uh, you should remedy that immediately. He's at S-A-M-E-S-F-A-N-D-I-A-R-Y, Sam Esfandiari. Uh, again, thank you so much, and I'm sure down the line I will be bothering you again. Yeah, anytime. I mean, hopefully you are, because that means that they've stayed healthy and they're relevant. I, don't, <laughs> I, I feel like you're probably not going to get me on to discuss how Jordan Poole's leading them from the 15th seed to the 14th seed if everything goes wrong. Well, at that point, we'll just bring you on um, to talk about your 2021 draft coverage because you'll be another (laughs) expert in that draft class. (laughs) Dude, it's a fun class. I'm actually – it is a fun class. You know what? I don't know too much about the prospects at this point. Like they've really all played like two to three games. So it's a lot of like projecting conjecture at this point. But it's like – 
they all look like kids who grew up watching Steph Curry, James Harden, and LeBron James because they're all kind of a hybrid of those players. Okay. So they're all like they're all six six, six seven, can do multiple things and are all constantly trying to chuck it from thirty feet. Also, so it's just interesting because it's like the first generation of guys who I think grew up on like modern basketball, like what we've gotten used to over the last six years. So they're developing those skill sets, you know, ability to make a three ability to run a pick and roll as a, as a bigger wing, those type of things that like maybe players 15 years ago were not doing, um, you know, when they were younger. Uh, I don't, I only ever get shin deep in draft coverage. And I certainly like, I can't watch live college basketball and it definitely won't be this time of year. But like I told you, Light years, while it was painful for you, became like a very good place to like stay in tune with the NBA draft through, throughout <laughs> the season. And all I know at this point is everyone thinks that like Cade Cunningham is going to be like the super real deal in uh, out of this he's, draft class. Um, probably it's too kinda... ambitious with the Wolves pick because if if you're getting yeah, Cade Cunningham, it's the Wolves kept it. But uh, yeah. I think the Wolves are going to be in that conversation for like a bottom five to seven team. And so that's a really valuable pick for Golden State, assuming they keep it. And this is one of those drafts where, like, someone said there's 10 guys in this draft who would go number one over Anthony Edwards. That feels like, um, you know, hyperbole, but uh, but it might not be off. It's one of those drafts where, like, the guys who are going six, seven, eight are still interesting. And, like, we know you're not going to get 10 all-stars in the first 10 picks. Like, that's not how it works. But there are guys who are going to be picked there who have, like, tools and look just interesting. Let's put it that way. As opposed to like in other drafts where you're drafting like Kentavious Caldwell Pope number eight. And you're like, right. I hope the three D wing, you know? Yeah. Um, but again, this was great. Thank you so much, Sam. And I'll, I'll be talking to you soon. Absolutely. Talk to you later. Dan. TJ, welcome to your first appearance on the Hardwood Knox podcast. It's taken way too long for me to bother you considering how long you have been a part of uh, blue wire pod specifically, but how are you doing today? I'm good, man. Mandalorian was amazing. I have coffee in my hand and I'm on the right side of the dirt. So I'm in a good mood today. (laughs) The right side of the dirt. That's a great way to give an update on how you're doing. Uh, My hot take is I am like Star Wars ignorant to the upteenth degree. I've seen the original seven like once each and that's just it. I didn't board like I haven't seen the new ones. I haven't watched Mandalorian. Nothing. So what's funny is I was like you, like the most casual, I don't care about Star Wars individual. Like, yeah, the movies are fun. They were like fun Marvel movies, not a whole lot to it. Pandemic hit and I had nothing to do in Disney Plus and suddenly I love Clone Wars. I love Rebels. I'm like ordering books. Like I have become a Star Wars mega nerd. Oh, in the wow. Past well, there's not a whole lot to do. There's a lot of sitting and staring at the television. So, like, so I definitely fell into this whole samurai western crazy Star Wars <laughs> universe that I am now a part of. So here I am. There are much worse ways you could be spending um, downtime in the pandemic. That is true. Maybe that by like true. living your life as if nothing's going on, which seems to be happening with increasing frequency. Especially, I'm in the Midwest, man. You're in New York. I'm sure you see it too. But the Midwest got the whole like we're stronger than the coronavirus thing going on out here, and it is not my vibe. Uh, yeah, I'm on like yeah. I think people like I'm in the worst, not the worst part, but I'm on Long Island in New York. So like, there's a lot of that going on here because it's it's very red where I am. I think is the best yep. way to put it. Um, that is a very clear way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did bring you on to talk Nuggets, though. There, 
offseason was more eventful than I thought it was going to be, mostly because of Jeremy Grant. So I think the best place to start before getting a little bit more granular was just looking at everything that happened. Um, you know, them getting RJ Hampton, losing Grant. Um, they re-signed Millsap. They have Jermichael Green, who is one of my, as Zach Lowe calls them, siren songs. Um, mm-hmm. Jermichael Green is a siren song of mine. Uh, what was your just general impression of the Nuggets offseason? Anything you really liked, shocked by, disliked? Um, I, I really, you, my initial takeaway after learning how these things kind of played out over that week and a half of chaos of the offseason, I felt bad for Denver. I know that's like a weird way to look at this, but they really, really wanted to get on the Drew Holiday conversation. And they were. They were one of the finalists for Drew Holiday until Milwaukee just came out and dropped everything they owned on the table. So like, all of a sudden, Robert Covington was not a guy you can pursue. Kelly Oubre is not a guy you can pursue. You can't get involved in those trade conversations. So, okay, let's pivot. Things happen. Sometimes guys are going to offer five first-round picks for somebody, and you just can't match the deal. So they move on to Jeremy Grant, who, again, every expectation from Jeremy Grant's camp, from the Nuggets camp, was we're going to find a way to get a deal done. We were a Western Conference Finals team. He was arguably the third most important player for our organization. We need to get Jeremy Grant back here, and Jeremy Grant seemed to want to. Then Troy Weaver called, someone who had connections to who scouted him back to, back during his Syracuse days, convinced him to come. And this is the part that's crazy to me. Despite Jeremy Grant's own agent advising him to stay in Denver, despite oh. the same money still being offered by Denver, despite the Western Conference Finals one that they went on last season. Despite all of that, Jeremy Grant wanted to bet on himself. And again, that ruined Denver because operating as an above the cap team, because Jeremy Grant signed for 20 million doesn't mean you just have 20 million to spend all of a sudden. Denver only had their mid-level, only had the biannual and veteran minimums. So they had to pivot and find a way to make this work. So overall, watching the way it transpired, Denver did everything right and everything still went wrong. And that is just so deflating, I'm sure, after everything they accomplished this past season for it to go that way. So that was like my immediate reaction when I took a step back and looked at everything that had happened. Yeah, the and I listened to you uh, listen to your podcast when you like did the crossover with the uh, Pistons versus everyone pod mm-hmm. and Laz Jackson. I love Laz. Yeah, he's he's awesome. Um, I'll be pestering him soon just in case he's listening to this. Um, <laughs> I I don't I respect the bet that Jeremy Grant made. I think it I think it was dumb. And I listened to you like kind of justify how maybe he has more to offer um, as an offensive player. I tried. When you look at Detroit's roster, just with the crimped spacing, I think it's going to be a disaster for him. And I'll be shocked if he even like continues to hit the same percentage of his catch-and-shoot threes that he did in Denver and his final season in OKC. Yeah, two things there. Playing alongside someone not named Nikola Jokic is very different than playing alongside Nikola Jokic, and he's about to learn that in a very, very big way. The second thing is I agree with you. I am all for guys betting on themselves, but this feels a whole lot more like being at the tables in Vegas and your buddy goes like all in on a terrible bet and everyone's cheering anyway in excitement despite how terrible the bet is. Like that is very much so how this feels to me. Like everyone in the Nuggets organization is like happy for Jeremy. They want Jeremy to get the best possible situation for him that he can get they thought it was in denver and still believe it is in denver but jeremy didn't and when guys make that decision it's called free agency for a reason and i'm happy he made his own decision but 
this might nip them pretty quick. This might be a very tough decision. Like Ben Gordon said in that infamous interview, those were the worst years of my life being in Detroit. And I wonder if there's a sense of like, this might not go very well, but I hope it does. Yeah, there's, uh, man, they have, let's assume Blake Griffin is healthy. And that's a, that's kind of a leap in itself. They have maybe three above average shooters on this team with Blake Griffin, you have Shvi, uh, I wouldn't even throw Wayne Ellington in there anymore, just based off how he's been over the thing. Like maybe, but it's Sadiq terrifying Bay. that you have to. Right, <laughs> like that's the problem. Like the fact that we even have to include him in this conversation of spacing is damning. Yeah, and so I'll be interested to see how it plays out. I did see, and I think this is natural. Like once he left, there were people trying to downplay the departure, where it's like, well, now they don't have that money committed to him, which. Yeah, it's probably an overpay, like relative to what, like someone who is just basically three and D. But when you're the Nuggets and you already have your top two players, when you just went to the Western Conference Finals, um, when you've also taken like these cheaper gambles elsewhere, like if Bo Ball hits, uh, Michael Porter Jr. looks like he's going to hit. Uh, that's fine to pay Jeremy Grant that money. Way more justifiable than the Pistons, in mm-hmm. in my opinion. But. They pointed to like the on-off defensive splits for him, where Denver was so much worse. And it seems just for me, afar, when you look at like a lot of the lineups he was in, it feels like those were detrimental to that. But I'm just wondering if I'm wondering if overall, like what how you would explain that is like that the correct way to look at this? Because I dug into the lineups and I was like, oh, this is this is a rough lineup. (laughs) People forget, like people just want to look and be like, wow, in the playoffs, he was really good, but his numbers over the whole season are bad. There's so much more nuance to on-off splits than that. He was playing off the bench with a bench unit that had no idea what they were doing for the first couple months of the season. Like they were an abject disaster on that end of the floor. And I'm sorry, your defensive numbers on a bench unit, not guarding the elite players in the NBA when that's your skill set, is not going to be indicative of the kind of defender you are. So while I like to hope as a Nuggets point of view, that those numbers are actually true, I don't buy into them at all. There's a lot of other factors that play into this. What I will say is that, yeah, the rebounding is a big issue. Is he really going to be able to create off the bounce? Because there were a lot of if like difficulties there in the playoffs. I actually believe it's possible, but you're... 18 months away with with a lot of reps before he actually becomes that like Pascal Siakam archetype, not that level of player, but that archetype of player. So I don't know what this is going to look like. I hate that Detroit roster the way it's currently constructed, and I don't think it's going to do anything to make Jeremy Grant look good. But to at least give Troy Reaver some credit, even if Jeremy Grant looks terrible and they get into the third year of this deal and they get to the trade deadline, there are going to be a line of contenders who still want to try and trade for him. This is not necessarily circumstances to where a completely negative asset for them despite the contract, but there it's still very confusing. I've I've actually thought about that because, you know, he has like this it's um I don't even know what it starts at. I forgot to look at it, but like so it's like 20 million annually on average. There will be like contenders that want him, and there are like a lot of kind of like sizable expirings out there. Like it could even be this season where maybe it's not working out. Like he doesn't, he's not, he's just not playing well. Detroit's going nowhere because that's that's just definitely where they're headed. They're not. I even if Blake Griffin's healthy, I don't know that I would pick them to make the playoffs or the play in. So I could see like a scenario where he's like doesn't even finish this season with the Pistons. 
That would be wild. If they are able to flip him for like a first round pick, that would be actually like a very shrewd move overall because there's a lot of contending teams if they can get the salary to match to where he is a legitimate upgrade for them going into the playoffs. So we'll have to see. Again, I think Troy Weaver has some idea of what he's doing. I don't think he's like, we're going to have all bigs. Like, I don't think that's like the vision of the Pistons because all they have on their books in three years is Mason Plumley, Jeremy Grant, and all of their picks. So that's fine. That's exactly what you want to do as a rebuilding team. It's just very confusing this year in a vacuum. Yeah, look, still, I'm the Mason Plumlee contract. Just I will defend that one. I, I did this on Laz's podcast. Please defend it, but I want to say where I'm coming from is like if you're going to spend money on Plumlee, guarantee um, Jaleel Okafor's contract, uh, I would rather spend the little bit extra that it would have costed to have had Christian Wood. That's all. They obviously know more about him than me, having had him all year, that's where I think it looks a lot worse. And I think if you look at other big man contracts in Mason Plumlee's defense, knowing what he could do as a passer, how he's just like, his, his IQ for the game in the half court seems like it's just, it's really there. The the salary isn't egregious, but for the Detroit roster, and then given the primary alternative though, that's where I think the huge miss was. And then yes, in the moment when they still had Dwayne Dedman, when it looked like they had a Jillian Biggs, Tony Bradley was on the roster, it also looked pretty damning. This is what I said on Pistons vs. Everybody. It is truly laughable, and it is worth all of the jokes that it has gotten for that contract from Mason Plumley. But when you look closer at it, he is the perfect big for all of their young guards and young guys on the roster, from Sadiq Bey all the way through. He is the guy who will roll hard, set great screens, dive for 50-50 balls, do whatever he can on defense to cover up for your rookie mistakes. Like I can't even count the number of times that Michael Porter Jr. got obliterated on the perimeter, and Mason Plumley appeared from nowhere to save him from looking like a complete lost puppy on defense. So those kinds of things are going to be hyper important to a Detroit roster or Detroit Pistons roster who needs to start developing the right habits. And he's going to do it all with a smile on his face. This is a guy who was a starter on a playoff team in Portland, came to back up Nikola Jokic, and he did everything he could to make that team the best version of themselves. So the Mason Plumlee part, like again, in a vacuum, everything else around it makes it look way funnier than the actual deal is. But I think that he is probably going to be looked at as the more productive contract than Jeremy Grant in the long run. That's I think that's fair. Um, and he, again, will make a lot more sense on the roster when it looks like they're bottoming out because you yeah. want solid veterans who are willing to play on bad teams. So if you trade, let's say Griffin's healthy and you move him, there's no way Derek Rose finishes the season in Detroit. Yes. Um, they need to clear the runway for Killian Hayes there, another below average shooter at the moment. But yes. um, so having that presence there where I think like, Let's just look at Oklahoma City for a second. You don't, I don't think George Hill and Al Horford are going to be particularly excited to be there if they have to finish the season there, and Horford probably has to. To bring this back to the Nuggets, though, Grant is the type of player for them that seems like way more important in the playoffs because of how their um, run into the conference finals and into the NBA finals like, has to go. Who do those like, bigger wing assignments now fall to? Like, I look at the <laughs> roster, and look, because even Torrey Craig in that aspect is like, yes. okay, he's gone. So now I don't even have like an easy default option because I think you can pretty easily make the case that Gary Harris is their best perimeter defender now, but mm-hmm. he doesn't have like the size or the length to match up with the guys that Jeremy Grant and even Torrey Craig were going up against. They lost. So of their four best defenders, Gary Harris, Jeremy Grant, Mason Plumley, Torrey Craig, they lost three of them, and one of them has been more injured than he has not been going forward. So we have absolutely no idea what the, what the defensive identity of this team is anymore. None. Zero. This is why I have completely removed the Nuggets from the true contending tier in the NBA 
Western Conference. Like, I just don't think that they're in that category anymore. They're in that Dallas, uh, Phoenix, Portland, Utah grouping all of a sudden because they just don't have that ability to match up. And you have to be able to match up with Jumbo Wings in this version of the NBA playoffs. So I have no idea. To be honest with you, there isn't a right answer. They're going to hope Gary Harris can do it. They're going to hope Michael Porter Jr. takes a leap. Maybe Bull Bull is something. Maybe P.J. Dozier carves out a role. But there's it's not enough. They're, they don't have enough current big perimeter defenders who can be a 3 and D big. Like that's become a hyper fascinating role in the NBA. These 3 and D bigs who defend all over the floor and are willing to do whatever it takes and fill in all those gaps. They don't have that. And there's like six dudes who can fill that role in the NBA. So maybe Zeke Najee is already more prepared than we <laughs> thought, but like that's really where Denver is at. They like don't even have the the idea of the players like between 6'7 yeah. and 6'9. Like they just don't even have those guys. Will like, Barton and- is their only backup small forward. Like that's where they're at in terms of the wing situation now. Um, this is uh, not to give people a reason not to listen to this podcast, but like I feel like talking about Nikola Jokic gets boring because he's so known. Like he's an entertaining player, but what are we debating about Nikola Jokic anymore? There's he's, nothing to debate, right? Right. Um, it seems like what could make this team at least the level of threat it became last year. And full disclosure, I and it was publicized. I got so much shit for it. Um, I picked the Nuggets to win the title this past year before the season nice. started. Um, it looked a lot better when they made it to the Western Conference Finals, but that's a pick that I did not stick with as the year went on. <laughs> but for them to be at that like same, like get into the Western Conference Finals conversation, it feels like the clear, I know people might focus on Michael Porter Jr. or Gary Harris, like having an offensive conscience for the entire season. But it feels like it's Jamal Murray. If he is the, like, he's not going to be, there's no way he's going to score like he did um, in the bubble at points. But if he's like kind of had the breakthrough to, Hey, he's an actual star now, like the top 25 to 35 guy, that might be their path back to being, I would say at least as dangerous in the regular season. I still don't know about the playoffs um, just because the defensive matchups will matter there. But what is, what are you going into the season? Like looking at, um, from Jamal Murray or, or expecting or just wondering about? There's just one word, and this has been the word for the past three years, consistency. Can you do what you did in the bubble? Can you do it in November when it's cold in Minnesota? Like, can these things become something that you can rely on? Can you know you're going to get 18-4-4 four, four every single night from Jamal? Right now, that is still a question to be solved. We have no idea. We saw him do what he did in the bubble, which was out of this world. Like, I had no idea that Jamal Murray would not only become Michael Jordan-level scorer, but be defending like he did, right. to be bodying dudes in the pick and roll and creating passing angles, to be finishing at the rim the way he did. Like, all of those leaps were way more important to me than the scoring because he got hot. Like, everybody got hot in that bubble. There wasn't a soul who shot worse in the bubble compared to the regular season. So, like... I'm trying to remove the scoring aspects to a degree. There was no fans, endless sight lines. It was amazing for a shooter. But the defense, the playmaking, the added strength from the hiatus, those are things that are absolutely going to go forward and actually help the Nuggets. But I don't think that's what you need to be able to get to that next level in the playoffs. He doesn't fix the biggest issues the Nuggets now have. And the only way you can fix the biggest issues that they now have is to find a player outside of your roster who can do it. And unless Michael Porter Jr. takes a leap that literally nobody sees coming, including the Nuggets organization, which will not put that pressure on him, they're not going to be like, Michael Porter Jr., we need you to be third team all defense. Like, (laughs) you can't do that. You know what I mean? But you need that kind of caliber of player at that position to be able to contend in the Western Conference Finals right now. So... 
I don't think that Jamal Murray will hurt them. I think he will get better. And I think that they could actually potentially win more regular season games. But I don't think that it's going to translate to playoff success. There's, I guess the one element where scoring could really, if he's more consistent, like as an off-the-bounce scorer in crunch time, where Nicole Jokic has been like one of the best crunch time players for two or three years now, to now have Murray on top of that, if there's a level of consistency there, I think what's still the memory that typifies his entire career arc to me is that was it 2008, the Spurs series? Was that 2019, 2018, yeah. whatever that was? Yeah. Where he, like, he won them two games, but, like, lost them one and a half games. Like, that was the that was the Jamal Murray experience to me in a nutshell. Yes. Man, I will never forget that game, too. He was, like, 0 of 13 or, like, 1 of 12 or something entering the fourth quarter. And then he scored 18 in the fourth and won the Nuggets the game. And if they <laughs> lose that, if they lose game two at home with home court advantage after being down 0 to 1 of the Spurs, like, you had in the first round round that's it well maybe not the nuggets they do like winning from 3-1 comebacks but regardless of that this is beyond (laughs) that this is before i don't think that you win that series but at the same time honestly that series changed because they put gary harris on Derek white Derek white was just abusing jamal murray it didn't matter Derek white had 32 points in game yeah he was volcanic in that series yeah destroying jamal and that's why when i talk about this playoffs his his defensive performance in this playoffs was like exponentially better than I had ever seen him play for an extended amount of time. And that's probably the most important thing to me. But yeah, he was um, a volatile character in that first playoff run for the Denver Nuggets of this iteration of their franchise. You mentioned Michael Porter Jr. before and how Denver's being realistic about his expectations this year. So what are those expectations? Like, is he going to not even a, you know, will he start? Do you think he'll be a closing lineup staple? Does it all come down to how well he plays on on defense, like, because that seemed to dictate his playing time this past year was how, I don't want to say good, but like when he wasn't like actively hurting them on defense, like he was allowed to play. Is it still like that type of situation? I don't know. Because again, like this is the hardest part about the time of COVID. I'm not there watching where he's playing in these runs. I'm not able to talk to coach in person and see how he reacts to these things. Like things are so different now. It's hard to get a gauge on it. What I will say is this. If Michael Porter Jr. does not start and he does not get the reps he needs to start developing himself to play at this caliber of basketball, the Nuggets are done. They are well aware. Like Tim Connolly called it uh, a poorly kept secret that they need Michael Porter Jr. to take a leap this year because all of their eggs are now in his basket. They could have forced, they could have gotten Drew Holiday if they put Porter on the table, I bet. They could have traded for almost anyone in basketball that is, you know, that is arguably available for trade if they included Michael Porter Jr. They didn't. They lost Jeremy Grant. They lost Torrey Craig. They lost Mason Plumley. You got to show out now because every little bit of their hope for the future is is predicated on him becoming something that he was not last year. And he was good last year, but the consistency, the ability to fit within a team construct, the defensive attention to detail, all of those things are now the most important things for Michael Porter Jr. and the Nuggets. So he is the pivot point. If everything is going to revolve around his development this season in terms of where the Nuggets can end up by the end of it. There's like, what's sort of weird about that is I feel like he could be in like, let's say play 25 to 30 minutes a game, like be the same like offensive weapon in a nutshell that he was last season. And I actually don't know how much it ends up moving the needle for Denver because that's not, they're not going to have a problem doing those things with or without him. And like, yeah, I mean, he was, I forget what the exact number was, but I remember right about like he had an insanely high effective field goal percentage late in the shot clock. So yeah, there's always going to be like, that's going to have super value, but unless he's like going to be a good defender, I don't know how far he can push this, this team. And so I'm just curious 
Like, do you see there, – there were plays where, for me, watching, like, a couple games where it felt like he was making, like, some pretty – what I felt like were – I don't want to say, like, solid rotation. They were, like, better than average rotations where it felt like he was anticipating things off the ball. But, like, he was – like, were they frequent enough for you to believe that he'll ever be a good defender? Or are you, like, kind of more on the pessimistic view of it? Because I have zero feel – for what you can expect from Michael Porter Jr. defensively moving forward. So he did have some like legitimately like NBA quality rotations defensively. And like um, running joke on Twitter is me turning to Matt Moore during Nuggets games and being like, you see the tools that Michael Porter Jr. has on defense? Like you see how good that could potentially be? Because there is like the physical ability of Michael Porter Jr. is devastating defensively. He's so agile in terms of of being a perimeter defender because his hips actually do move that he can get into passing lanes. He can swallow dudes up. He can just get wide and contain on the perimeter, but he can also rotate from the weak side and block shots like to have a wing who can do both of those things is so hyper rare in this nba setting but my question is this is porter gonna get so good offensively he just stops caring about defense Mm -hmm. this has always been my question because and credit to michael malone i think that michael malone deserves way more respect for the way he has handled michael porter jr because if you don't instill these defensive principles now he will never get them because he is that gifted offensively like you said just a stupid effective field goal percentage at the end of the shot clock he is one of the most gifted shot makers from anywhere on the court off the bounce off the catch that is in basketball right now he is a god-given talent in that regard but is he ever going to care about defense enough? If he gets too good offensively, I think all of a sudden you see him start to stop caring about the rest <laughs> of it. And I'm sorry, like, that is really where I fall on this. So hopefully Michael Malone is just drilling this kid again because if they don't get that defensive impact from him, you're not winning, even if he averages 25 and 12 a night. Yeah, and so um, I'm wondering, the other player that I have this like so- sort of same question about is Gary Harris. I know injuries have like dogged him basically the past two seasons and he did his three point clip. I think when you look from like February onward was like, it was good, but he's just been such a roller coaster on offense to the point where it's felt like he just even shouldn't be on the floor at times and hasn't been on the floor at times that the nuggets would need him. Like, is there like, I I don't want to say is there pressure on him because there's pressure on everyone every season, but you're reaching the point where it almost feels like if he's not the Gary Harris, he was when they signed him to the extension. Like, is there even, like, how big of a point is there in, in them keeping him? Like, where they shouldn't actively be looking to move him at that point. It feels like that's the type of the season that he's entering now. Yeah, I just don't know what asset will be out there for you to get for him. Like, are you going to trade a negative asset in Gary Harris and move something with him just to move off the money? Like, I just don't think Denver's going to get to that point with Gary. Plus, he's the longest tenured Nugget on the roster. They adore Gary Harris as an individual. They want him in a Nuggets uniform for the long haul. But again, now they're at the point now where they have to start asking the questions that you were posing. Is he able to actually even play enough? And when he does play, will he even be efficient enough? The most glaring, brutal stat that I had last year was pre-All-Star break which again was only like the entire regular season minus 10 games so it was virtually the entire regular season um gary harris was one of two starters in basketball to shoot under 40 percent from the field and under 20 percent from three awesome justice winslow who played 12 games and gary harris who was playing 30 minutes a night like you cannot be the least efficient starter in all of basketball if you're going to earn minutes and have trade value going forward. It cannot happen. And then he gets injured again with his lower body with his lower body stuff that he keeps having. He now has, if I remember correctly, 15 lower body injuries, 14 Whoa. in the last like 30 months. Wow. 
Like, I didn't realize the number was that high. It was foot, hamstring, shin. Then he had like an ankle issue. Then it was the core issue. It, 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 it's it's literally nonstop. Like I've always had this perspective that it was very similar to Terrence Ross earlier in his career. He was lifting like a football player, trying to jump out of the gym with all that weight, and the lower body just couldn't handle it. Gary Harris could have been an all-pro NFL receiver. He was recruited to play both football and basketball at Notre Dame. So like he could have been a Megatron caliber receiver. So the dude in terms of his size jumping like that, I can see why it doesn't hold up very well. So everything is going to be a big deal with Gary Harris. No one's going to put their eggs in that basket. But if Gary Harris becomes the Gary Harris of 16, 17, the Nuggets go right back up into that status, in my opinion. There's nobody's willing to bet on that right now. Yeah, and I mean, you're not going to move him as... I think the idea of him is still, like, his contract wouldn't be super tough to move, but you're right, with the two years and whatever it is left remaining that's not going to be like a positive value in a deal and it's interesting you mentioned that they could have gotten drew holiday and they included michael porter jr i'm curious as to if they could have got there's no way they would have gotten drew holiday if that milwaukee offer was on the table and they were including michael porter jr and so it's like to have like that and i think part of that is because gary harris is i mean milwaukee gave up all the picks but like when you're moving gary harris in a deal like that it's now it's more so for salary matching than it is as like a value play because you don't want to exactly. pay Gary Harris two years and thirty nine point six million in a vacuum. And and the other hard part is when teams call when they go when they try to salary match they're like what about Will Barton instead of Gary and Denver's like no like we want to hold on to Will Barton we believe in Will Barton we want him to play and that's a fascinating part of the discussion is everybody could call him for Will but they keep trying to pitch Gary it's and again it seems like this is not necessarily something that like is happening with every single trade call but this has happened here and there and that's a tough place to be as Denver and that's not a good situation for Gary Harris to be in. Yeah, and um, that was one of my questions is, so who's like more important, useful, whatever to this team, like it, like if they want to be a contender next season? Is it now Will officially? Will, yeah, and I mean the season, his season last year was like verging on unreal. Um, no, people don't realize how great Will Barton was for this Nuggets team during the regular season last year. Like he was, he, he picked up the Tyreek, uh, the Tyreek, oh, who was it? Tyreek Evans. I almost forgot his name. I haven't talked about him in so long. The Tyreek Evans mantle of the only dude who plays under 30 minutes a game who's averaging like 18, 6, and 5. Like he is just a walking production. Like he always finds a way to get you what you need. But my thing is, I look back on that Lakers series that they had in the Western Conference Finals. If Anthony Davis does not hit that game winner, which let's be honest, those are all coin flips. If that does not fall, Denver had two other coin games and, and they did it without Will Burton without being able to reverse the court. They were running Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, pick and roll, dribble, handoff till the sun died. And everybody knew it was coming and you couldn't get the ball to the other end of the court to run any other offense. So if they had Will Barton, a six foot six slashing guard who can also shoot from three off the bounce or off the catch can use a pick or doesn't need a pick to get downhill attacking a bent defense that changes the entire complexion of that series in my opinion so will barton is one of the most underrated picks for most improved player or comeback player of the year i think this year because the nuggets are going to need everything from him they don't have the depth at the wing position they might not have the health at the guard position so will is going to be asked to do a lot and his defense took a significant step forward last year as it is rebounding yeah i could not believe because he was so injured too like um the season before this one uh, this past one i couldn't believe how much better he looked on defense like that was pr- it was probably the best defense he played in his career i'm not like too oh familiar God. with how he was in portland but it easily seems like that in denver it's and i wonder if they get to like i don't think you could turn to him and be like you know what you're gonna be the one that has to defend these wings now but it seems like if 
if the discrepancy in value between him and Gary Harris remains this large, like Denver might just get to a point where it feels like, you know what, Paul Millsap, insofar as you're healthy, you're a defensive anchor, and then we're just going to have Barton, Porter Jr., Murray, Jokic around you, and like we're going to lean into to offense. And that might just be how they have to, I don't want to say like win every game, but like that's going to, offense is going to have to be their identity more so than it's ever been during this. And Jokic Michael era. Malone cries as you say this. <laughs> and like, that's the, like, that's the one thing that's going to be fascinating. Michael Malone has always been a topic of, it's a polar, it's a polarizing topic amongst fans. Every coach in the NBA is a polarizing topic amongst fans, but Michael Malone's a defensive first guy. Like he's been trying to that forever. And now you have to try and find to get the best, offense out of this roster in order to win games is michael malone going to pick up to do that um it's going to be fascinating but the it's going to be another thing i wanted to add to the will barton portion of this jeremy grant was not asked to defend the elite wings in the nba during the regular season when things started he was playing off the bench guarding power forwards that was that was what happened Will Barton was the one taking LeBron James, backing him down in the post. It was Will Barton who was really doing his absolute best. He wasn't great at it, but the effort, the intensity, the length, and the fight was all there to at least make it somewhat more difficult. So again, if we're trying to pretend like we have any idea what a closing lineup would look like against a team like the Lakers, I'd probably put Will on LeBron. I'd probably put Jermichael Green or Paul Millsap on Anthony Davis, and that's kind of how the Nuggets are going to have to match up. Yeah, I remember when I was looking, um, when I was doing the outline for this podcast, I was looking at the matchup data for like some of the Nuggets' other wings and was surprised to see like how much time Barton had spent on like a Jason Tatum. Um, Yeah. So... I guess he's going to have to do more, more of that and this season. And he'll accept it. He loves the battle. Like, you want to throw me the toughest dudes in the league. I'm like, like he's like an old school, play on concrete courts, pick up maniac. And if he gets that opportunity, he loves that opportunity. So I do anticipate seeing quite a bit of that this season. Uh, this is going to be a question that's very near and dear to uh, Adam from Ell's heart here. But what do them, you know, giving up an asset to get RJ Hampton now, or they essentially said, you know what, you're more valuable than this um, distant first pick, first round pick. Um, and they have Campazzo. What does this say about like Monte Morris, who is now in a contract year is I think it's, he's one of, I, I don't want to, I have to go through the list of backup point guards, but he's top three backup point guards in the oh, league sure. without question. Sure. Um, does this infer anything about, how they view his future in Denver? No, it does not. Um, Denver wanted to have more playmakers. They were abundantly aware of how um, at a disadvantage they were in the playoffs, only having two dudes on the same side of the court who can create for others. They were. It was so, so, so obvious to them. So the RJ Hampton pick too, by the way, that has nothing to do with this season. Not a damn thing. The Nuggets now have a young core for their young core. So like that's what Tim Connolly is doing with that one. Like you got Zeke Naji, RJ Hampton, um, and Bull Bull basically there to back up your new, you know, your actual young core of guys that you have now. So RJ Hampton has nothing to do with Monte Morris, nothing to do with Facundo Campazzo. It was a best player available pick on a team that does not need him right away that they can slowly bring along to potentially be the ideal shooting guard for this team in three, four years. Um, Monte Morris, though, everything I've heard is the Nuggets want to get an expansion done with him. They want Monte in Denver. They are well aware of how valuable he is around the league as well. There are a handful of teams that would start Monte right now, including Detroit, by the way. I <laughs> right away out of the gate but 
Monte Morris is valuable. Denver does not want to get rid of him, and they're going to play him. Even if Facundo Campazzo is coming off the bench with him and they're playing 5-11-6-1 backcourt, they're cool with it. Let's get the playmakers. Let's see how it fits, and let's run with it. So Monte is a part of this team until uh, until I have heard otherwise, which I have not. Every intention is they want to keep Monte in Denver. He's probably their second or third most attractive trade asset yeah. behind Michael Porter Jr., depending on how you feel about you know, I think the allure of, you know, you don't have to pay RJ Hampton for a while was just, you know, was just drafted. Like he might just be up there. Maybe some people are really in love with Bull Bull or something. But there he, are a handful of teams that are like real in on Bull Bull. <laughs> so, yes, I would still say like second or third behind him, like Michael Porter Jr. And so if they do make a, and that's probably a question for later, so I won't step on that. But Adam will be happy to hear that this yeah. does not imply anything sinister that Monte Morris will no longer be playing in the state of. Of Colorado, and you already answered this really, but so RJ Hampton is just we shouldn't really expect to see him get a crack at all this year. I the only way I see him playing is because Denver's resting everybody to start the year because they just got back from the bubble and they're like, screw it, let the kid play. Like, that's the only real reason that I see him playing legitimate minutes. If he gets like a legitimate rotation spot, something went very, very good or very, very bad one way or another. So I don't anticipate it, it's not off the table, but no, he's going to be a G League player if the G League exists, however, they figure that out. And that's kind of my envision of how his role will look. Yeah, if they can't figure out the G League stuff, that ends up being like really damaging for players in his situation where they're on a good team. And like, I, how are you going to get I want to push back on that. These two-way guys do not get to practice with their actual NBA team very often because they're trying to save the days. Well, didn't they? they only have so much. They changed it this yeah. year to 50 games. So, but what I'm thinking is if there's no G League, you're literally with the team every day, okay. practicing every day, getting work with the guys that you are eventually going to play with every day. I do wonder if there's a little bit of helpfulness to a lot of these guys who are almost in a player development year as opposed to getting real minutes against like the G League select team. I still feel like that actual game run where if you're going to go up against these guys in practice that they're probably not, and especially this season because of the truncated schedule, like how many of these guys are actually going to be practicing throughout the regular season, but yeah. that that is really a good point. Um, I, for, I forgot to ask this before moving off of Campazzo. The two questions I have is one, is it actually legal to have him and Nikola Jokic on the court at the same time? Because <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't care if it is. If that's criminal, <laughs> I'm a criminal and I'm happy to be here. Lock my ass up for talking about Facundo Campazzo and Nikola Jokic too much. There's, look, the, the hockey assist, like, highlight reel potential of this team now, like, if you, like, if they're both touching the ball in the same possession, oh my God. <laughs> like, so I just recorded a podcast on Facundo Campazzo's best case scenario for this season, right? Just envision this. Jamal Murray, Facundo Campazzo starting backcourt because Gary Harris is not able to give you enough. Then you have Michael Porter Jr., Jamichael Green, and Nikola Jokic. So Porter blocks shot. Jokic grabs rebound, outlets to Campazzo on the break, who is now attacking a slanted defense on the move with Jamal Murray just scorching down the court without anybody to grab him. There are so many ways that you can just destroy any kind of defense in front of you by having Campazzo with that group. I really do wonder if Facundo Campazzo can fight for that starting shooting guard position. Wow. And if he does, oh boy, that's going to be fun. Well, that's what I was going to, looking at his, I did, I'm, I did not watch him. I, I've not watched a ton of like. I, I, I'm way too in on Facundo. So um, <laughs> it's only a good balance here. Uh, so you look at his three point splits with Real Madrid. When I say they're all over the place, like I'm not, I'm not kidding. And they are all over the place. Does that concern you at all? Because if he's going to be in those lineups, he's going to have to be like, He's not going to, I don't know, I don't think he's going to be a great defender at the NBA level. And so you're going to, his value will be if he's playing with Jokic and Murray at the same time, there needs to be some off-ball value there. And if, if he's not hitting like those, 
you know, standstill three pointers, that could end up being an issue, but that doesn't seem to concern you. You're shaking your head. It's not a big yeah, deal. Yeah, I'm not concerned. He was asked to take an extremely high level of difficulty shots with on Real Madrid in unopportune circumstances. They didn't have a whole lot of just like incredibly brilliant, gifted guys like that who can just go get their shot from anywhere on the court. And Facundo can do that. It's very similar to the Devin Harris three point shooting splits in Dallas. They were like Rick Carlisle was like, there's two for one. Devin Harris, go shoot it. Like, I don't care if you miss every single one of them. And it skews those numbers. And I really, really do wonder if that was at play here. Because it's he's not like an elite Seth Curry, Steph Curry three-point shooter. That's not what I'm trying to pitch here. The shot versatility is incredible. He can shoot off the bounce going left, right, or stepping in. He can shoot off the catch going left, right, jumping into a shot, stepping into a shot from a standstill. Whatever the versatility that you need as a shooter, he can bring. He is an incredible floater artist, knows how to get into the mid-range, is very creative finishing at the rim as well, and he has learned how to maximize his size and not make it an impediment to his game offensively. So I very much so believe in his shooting, and I think it's going to look a lot better as a uh, complimentary player alongside Nikola Jokic than it ever did at being asked to create everything offensively for Real Madrid. The Nuggets clearly like believe in him too because you give him multiple guaranteed years correct yeah. i think so full like, biannual two years six million yeah, yeah. so Top i was place. that like took me back a little bit but like they're clearly it's obviously not a huge investment but to give him just the two guaranteed years i thought that was like a fairly big sign of how confident they are that he can they make an impact him. They really do like him. Tim Connolly, uh, Marty Poshis, actually, who was a scout and a front office advisor for the Nuggets, he actually played with him going back to some random – I can't remember which league it was in. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. I want to say it was Turkey, but I can't remember for sure. But the Nuggets have a scout who actually played with him, and they are friends on the team. So like that is a part of it that allowed them to know so much about Faku leading all the way up to this point. It's been like three years of them talking about trying to get Composite to Denver. Oh, wow. I didn't realize they, they loved, did that all. They've really liked him. And again, it's like the same thing as like the Rockets have always wanted to bring over Sergio Lowell. Like, yeah, it's been six years of them saying this, never got it done. Denver did with, with, with Facundo. The, so, Bobo, <laughs> do you see him like kind of looking at the Nuggets depth chart now? It feels like there's a chance he could become part of the backup five rotation, but is that possible? Because I also, from what I've seen in the quotes coming out of training camp, Isaiah Hartenstein clearly believes that he's getting minutes. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I'm just... The Nuggets love Isaiah Hartenstein. They think that there is so much untapped potential there that has not been able to shine because of his role in Houston. And they really do think that they got a steal on Isaiah Hartenstein. Um, Bull Bull is not a center right now. That is one thing I've been trying to tell people whenever Bull Bull comes up. You need to toss out the idea of Bull Bull playing center minutes. Unless you're playing a zone for 10 minutes around him, he is not playing center. Kenny, he can't really play the four, though. Like, I feel like that's three. You want to get weird? Let's get weird. I was talking to Tim Connolly on the Brooklyn courtside seats before a game, um, and he joked. I was talking about Bull Bull, and he goes, I was like, you know, what is? what can he play? He's not a center. He can't defend bigger power forwards. Like, what the hell? And he goes, why not small forward? And, like, both me and Brendan Vogt, who works for DNVR out here, kind of, like, chuckled. Tim didn't chuckle. Tim Tim believes he can play small forward. So then the bubble happens, and the and like the, the prelims, ex, whatever they call exhibition games, he was actually able to defend small forwards. And it wasn't because he was so mobile and loose. He's so long closing out to shooters, he can take one step from the paint and block your three-point jumper. That opened my eyes up to a whole new reality of what Bull Bull can be. There is a chance that they just let Bull Bull stand one step outside the paint on his side of the floor, take one step, and close out. 
That's all he's got to do as a small forward on the weak side. And it makes me so curious what this can look like. Of course, you can just run pick and rolls at him. There's a million ways that you can counter it. But I, I do think, with especially with how thin they are on the wing, there's a chance Bull Bull plays legitimate small forward minutes. Like, not in the rotation, but as like a fail safe. So... You think we actually see it, and then my my follow up question would be: You think he actually because you he doesn't he can shoot over the top of anyone, so he doesn't necessarily need to do too much. But you think he has the ball skills to like actually log time at the oh, three at the other end? Yes, um, his handles, his passing, and his shooting are fine. I have literally no concerns with that on at the NBA level right now. It's everything else. It's you know, can he turn his hips? Is he able to like keep up with guys in the in the in actual transition defense and actually get back quick enough? It's things like that that are more concerning for me, but no, his handles are there. His passing and vision are there. His shooting ability, I was told he might be the best shooter on the roster. So like th- there is something to it. So what is the what's the backup five rotation right now? Like, is this going to be we'll see more Millsap there this year? Uh, maybe we'll see I Green we'll there see as well. I, I don't think we'll see much Green there. Uh, well, I guess I'll say it this way: whoever doesn't start at power forward will get both backup power forward and backup center minutes. So whether it's Jermichael Green or Paul Millsap starting, the other will probably get six to eight minutes at backup center to play small and the bulk of the backup power forward minutes. So. Other than that, though, it's Isaiah Hartenstein's role, I think. That is what wow. I'm starting to pick up on. They really are excited about what he can bring to the table. I would actually prefer to see, like, Greed, Millsap, and it's in tandem um, than Hartenstein, just minimally of what I've seen from him. But I guess if they're that confident, like, there's – it's going to have to be – if they're – if so, Bobo's not a five, if that's what we're just saying, which is – I get, totally get that. Like, it has to be then – like, Hartenstein needs to play or it's going to have to be uh, Najee. Like, what – I yeah. That I don't know, like those options for a team that's I know Nicole Jokic lets you know Nicole Jokic has been durable. He plays a lot, but like that you could still lose games in the ten to thirteen minutes that he's just not on the court, which is like what we've seen with other teams. And so the backup five rotation for them still feels like it's semi pivotal. And I guess they're not it doesn't sound like they're committed to try like doing any one thing there. That's interesting. No. And what's really interesting too is that back at Rio Grande Valley in the G League when Monte Morris was there, guess who his center was? Isaiah Hartenstein. They called themselves the best pick and roll duo in the G League. They have played together tons of times. We're talking like 25, 30 games of experience together in addition to practice time. And that to me, like there is truly something that is there. They think that Isaiah Hartenstein can be a mobile big who can defend on the perimeter, can eventually stretch his shot out to three-point range, and a guy who can give you just tons of energy. Limitless, endless amounts of energy on the backup end of your center position. So I like the pickup, especially at the minimum. That's a win at the minimum. Um, But yeah, I don't think that we're going to see a whole lot of Paul Millsap or Jermichael Green at the five. If we do, um, it'll be bursts to be able to play small for a second as a counter, as opposed to like part of your rotation. That's really, I thought like the Clippers should have went to that more with Green, like during the second units in the playoffs. So maybe that's something that becomes more valuable in the postseason for them. I think that was more valuable specifically against the Nuggets because there was no one that you, like they didn't have anybody to match up with Nikola. So they were like, all right, let's get someone who's more mobile, more perimeter oriented to get Nikola Jokic out of place defensively. So like, I don't know how much of that was uh, useful for the Nuggets as, a, as opposed to a counter for the Nuggets because of what they presented to them. Well, I think the Clippers, by doing it, um, they like made the Warrior series competitive the year before in the first round. And I think they, they should have went like for it harder. 
um, in their Maverick series. Like, I, I just thought they underutilized. I mean, Jermichael Green stand over you. here. That's the problem. By the way, I'm with you on this. If it was me coaching the team, I would be doing this. Like, I very much so like playing big, you know, strong, bigger, old school power forwards at center off the bench to play smaller and faster, grab offensive rebounds, and just run. Like, I really value that type of bench unit play, but I just don't think the Nuggets are going to go that route. This might be an easy question. What ends up being, and it'll, I know it'll be matchup based to some extent, but what ends up being like the most common or most effective closing unit for this team? So, uh, and again, this is very early, so I'm still playing with this a lot. But right now, my thought is Jamal Murray, Will Barton, Michael Porter Jr., Jamichael Green, Nikola Jokic. You're That's so what green I'm, over Millsap in those situations. Yes. Wow. I'm looking at green over Millsap as a starter in general. Like almost anything that you bring to me as like, which one would you like to have more of? Like Jermichael Green is my answer. And that is not a shot at Paul Millsap. Jermichael Green has a lot more skills he can bring to this Nuggets team than he has shown on other teams. And I fully believe that his fit and honestly his youth compared to Paul Millsap is a really important addition. Like Paul Millsap has aged. I mean, Paul Millsap will tell you that. He also feels great and he'll say that, but he can't do do the same things that he once did like in the utah series he can't check the roller and then get back to the three-point line to defend a three-point shot jermichael green can and that is just something that you can't do at that age for paul Millsap right now which is why i give jermichael green the edge yeah he did seem like he picked up a little bit in the uh lakers series but i don't know if that was a product of how the lakers play like that might have benefited yeah. Millsap. So the Jazz loved relocating their shooters on the weak side as the action on the strong side happened, which made Paul Millsap have to take a beat to refine his the guy that he's defending to get out to the perimeter. The Lakers didn't do much of that. There wasn't as much off-ball like nuance to their ability to attack them. So Paul Millsap knew he was just going to the corner against the Lakers. It wasn't, oh, Joe Ingles just slowly waded his way up the wing, and now I can't get there. So that's kind of the difference in those two series in my eyes. You might have already tipped your hand here because it sounds like you want to see Bobo at the Three, but is there a quirky lineup where if you were in charge of the team or Mike Malone said, hey, you could just pick our pick this five man unit. I'm going to roll it out right now. Is there one that you would just like to see them test out at some point this year? Uh, yes. Yes, there is. Jamal Murray, Facundo Campazzo, Michael Porter Jr., Bol Bol, Nikola Jokic. Give it to me. Give me all of the offensive passing, shooting, chaos mess that I can have. Like there's a mismatch everywhere. Like you can do whatever you want with that group. Like you can run four or five pick and rolls at Bol Bol and Nikola Jokic. You can run three, four pick and rolls at Michael Porter and Bol Bol. You can do any sort of combination with either of your guards. Like the fun and the limitless potential of the offensive game plan with that group is just so exciting to me, and I would love to see them play. I wonder if Mike Malone would resign on the spot if he was told he had to play that lineup. <laughs> I'm drinking water, and I definitely felt it get towards my nose and almost come out from laughing there. Um, Michael Malone would explode. I love Michael Malone to death. That is not how he wants to play basketball. Like Michael Malone is much closer to like the 2015-16 Grizzlies than he is to that version right. of basketball. Like this is like no way that I'm seeing that work out. We kind of touched on this like tangentially before, but the Nuggets still feel like they're built for some sort of move just because they have like salary that could be matched elsewhere. Um, they do have um, they've only traded one future first round pick. You still have RJ Hampton sitting there. I guess they could include. Um, MPJ, but they have some nice non-MPJ assets as well when you look at Bol Bol and even Monte Morris. Do you see them trying to, not necessarily pulling it off, but trying to be aggressive at the trade deadline to go out and maybe get that body um, that they're now missing without Jeremy Grant? Or is that, you know, they might just 
hang their hats on maybe getting lucky in the buyout market. Like maybe Trevor Reese is floating around out there at some point as well and come to Denver or something like that. So I do think that they saved part of their biannual exception for the buyout market. That would make so much sense to me because they didn't use the whole thing. So I do expect that to be at least on the table. Also, Denver be, will make every call. That would be a wep- a real weapon with Ariza who I, as a as a player, I appreciate because he's been like a true mercenary where it's like, you know what? I'm going to get paid here. And I'll figure out a way to get to another team later. And that's you know I, a I one like year that. $10 million deals that he's got right. is incredible. <laughs> he's playing for like seven. He had to, at one point this off season, forget who he was playing for or which yeah. team he was on, which Ooh, is OKC apparently. Allegedly. <laughs> no, my favorite thing was people were playing this game on their podcast. Justin Russo was, where I was like, who does Trevor Ariza play for? And it was like a trivia game during the off season. That was funny. No one got it right. Um, but <laughs> at the same time though, I don't know if Denver would trade any assets to get a um, a placeholder for Jeremy Grant. You have to be talking about a legitimate um, near star level player or a like, superstar in your role. Because again, Jeremy Grant at like 12 and 5 is not like a superstar, but he was exactly the type of player in that role that you wanted. So if they can find someone like that, which let's be honest, I don't know of a one. I don't know of a single person that I would Especially, trade. Especially so many of them were like, actually moved this offseason where it's like the ones that you could envision being available. Okay, Jay Crowder's now on what should be a good team. So unless Phoenix flops, it's not going to be Jay Crowder. Josh Richardson was just traded to Dallas. And so unless, let's say, Kristaps is just unhealthy, they're worried about cap space next year and they don't want to resign him when he opts out, he's not going to be available. Uh, Covington was just sent to the Blazers and they gave up two firsts for him. They're not moving Kelly him. Bray in the exact same boat going to Golden State. Like There aren't players that Denver can just go get. And that's why when people start asking me about like future moves, I'm like, listen, unless they, unless Bradley Beal's available, I don't see a whole lot of like shakeup at this point. And they have seven new dudes in their roster right now anyway. Like, do the Nuggets really want to have even more turnover on that roster? Like, no, it's not your top end of your rotation, but like that is still impactful to your overall team complexion. So I really do, like, the only way I see Denver going all in is if, is if a guy of, you know, Bradley Beal's ilk becomes available, but I don't see them trading for, Serge Ibaka, who finally is able to be traded. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that just isn't going to fit for what Denver is looking for, especially if you send Monte Morris and Will Barton to do it. Like, I just don't see it. The, so, so you see, I guess it would be more likely for them to go all in on a blockbuster than to go out and try and find, like, someone to fill the the role that they lost with Jeremy Grant. Because there just aren't enough players out there who are available for the right price to be able to get that like that. There just aren't. The one I thought about, and it doesn't work like by itself, but like if you get to a point, um, the framework would be Gary Harris for Harrison Barnes. I, I don't think that would. I, uh, are you adding enough defensively with Harrison Barnes? And is he his style of play, you know, the Kobe-esque, I'm going to get my shot off the bounce, going to fit within this Nuggets team construct? I think he's done since Dallas made him that player after yeah, he left Golden State. And fair. I feel like he's done a lot better of a job balancing that out in Sacramento. And if he's willing to do that in Sacramento, um, he's going to be willing That's to do fair. that when he plays next to That's Jokic. a really good point. It's a really good point. But again, that contract's big, too. Um I don't know. I don't like it on the surface. I haven't looked into it enough. There might be something I'm just not thinking about right now. But on the surface, like, does that move the needle for you? I don't think it does. Now, or maybe it does a little bit. Not enough to put you back into that contender t- category. Not to put you with the Lakers and the Clippers. Like, that's not where you end up from that kind of a move. Yeah, I mean, so he's three years, 68.8. Um, Harris is two years, 40, basically. So it's the extra year. I think where the concern is, is you probably at this point would trust Barnes more so at the four spot where you're not hard up for talent than you would as like the three. Like Jeremy Grant was like, you could put him anywhere. 
Barnes yeah. doesn't have like that malleability. But that was, I think that's the trouble though. I was like, that's the move. Um, Josh Richardson would have been my favorite addition for this that team, was even more so than Roko. That was mine as well, because you can put him at the two. Like you actually have size, athleticism, and defensive versatility at this at the shooting guard position for the first time since Nikola Jokic has been in Denver. Like they just never have had that kind of a wing in the backcourt. Um, I, I that's something that I very much so would have liked. Uh, and he's like the Heat. At least Philly didn't use him like this. He was defending one through four when he was yeah. in Miami, which is just wild. So, what's a um, realistic win total? and Western Conference standing finish for this team. You can give me the 82-game equivalent. I have the formula lined up right here <laughs> so I can plug it in. Yeah, I had 47 with the with like not not on an 82-game schedule, on a 72-game schedule. I was hovering right around 46 to 48 wins. Okay, so if they were 46, that's the equivalent of 52 wins, so 52 to 53, which yeah. it feels right because, like I said, it feels like this team might be just as good during the regular season. It's... I feel like where we're going to see it gets worse if no moves are made is during the playoffs, if that makes any sense. It would be really funny if Denver had it their, like, what, sixth straight season of, like, a 50-plus win rate where, like, you know, again, if there's 82 games, you would have won 50 kind of thing, and they still lose in the first round of the Phoenix Suns in the 4-5 matchup. Like, that's the most Nuggets thing I can conceive of in my brain. So, like, that's kind of how I'm viewing this team right now. They're a good team that can be a top-four seed who is probably going to lose pretty damn quick in the playoffs because they don't have that upside. There's, and I think... Their ceiling would be um, standings-wise. I think you could argue first, but it feels like second oh, yeah. would be realistic because I feel like one of the Lakers or Clippers are just going to stumble into being dominant. Um, I don't know that they'll care enough about the regular season. So there's a scenario where it's like, well, the Clippers and the Lakers really don't care, and the Nuggets are kind of built for the regular season, and they have the one seed. So they, they have like – and then below that, like one through – six this year or let's say one through five to six because the rockets will probably blow up i'm assuming they yeah. feel like almost interchangeable at this point yeah. in the west which is part of the yeah. madness for sure and again there's always the aspect that all of these teams in the top half of the western conference just got back from the bubble so like they're not going to be going all in for the first you know six weeks of the season anyway they're going to get their recovery and like i don't anticipate the nuggets playing any of their starters through more than three quarters you know what i mean like that's just kind of where they're at right now and i i do wonder how that skews a lot of these conversations we just don't know how these teams are going to manage the ridiculously short offseason that they just had yeah we're talking about like expectations and it's like there might just be scheduled rest nights for guys who would mm-hmm. normally you know murder their coaches if they rested like if the the blazers might rest dame like if he's not injured no, like that could actually happen has never said he wants to rest he has actively pushed back and hates the idea like my vision of jamal murray resting is him being handcuffed to a table not able to leave even he was like listen man if there's some rest i can get in the first half of the season i'm gonna take it like because <laughs> that's where these guys are at though like that's a lot to bear especially when you're playing at this level of competition just had two three one comebacks and then lost in the western conference finals in dramatic fashion like that's a lot to come back from that quickly yeah uh, i still can't believe they raised two three to one deficits that's just that's amazing um and the fact that an anecdote in the past now because we've had to move so fast first of all it feels like a zillion years ago because not only like it feels like time has at once sped up and slowed down at the same time where it feels like an eternity ago that it was march but like how is this year not over yet type deal um is there anything that I missed that you feel we need to talk about? Um, anything that you want to get off your chest now that we did not cover? I don't think so. I think, we, I think we've covered most of it. Normally I have something that's been running through my brain, but I think we covered it, man. Hey, I was worried we were going to be too cookie cutter, so I appreciate that. Do we need a Nicole Jokic's nuptials? Maybe those? I want to know what that wedding was like. 
<laughs> Nicole Jokic's wedding, which was hysterical, by the way. I had a Serbian newspaper reach out to me in my Twitter DMs in Serbian, trying to explain to me that Jokic got married so I could put it on Twitter. Uh, it's so funny how like invested the Serbian community is in every last little thing Nikola Jokic does. I will say this. There's three things that Nikola Jokic cares about in this world. His girlfriend, music, and horses. And he got all of those things in his wedding, so I'm very happy for Nikola Jokic. That is all that I care about. Uh, the video of him like riding um, the what is Dreamcatcher? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Bella Marguerite and Dreamcatcher are his two horses back out in Serbia. Um, that's fantastic. Um, TJ, thank you so much for giving me a bunch of your time. If you guys are not following TJ on Twitter, remedy that immediately. Particularly if you're listening to this on his podcast feed uh, and not Hardwood Knox, <laughs> he is at TJ McBride MBA. That's at TJ M C B R I D E M B A. He is the host of the Rocky Mountain Hoops podcast for Blue Wire Pods. And you can also find his writing all over the place now, which I'm sure he'll be bumping on Twitter when it's all published. Oh, yeah. Um, love talking hoops with you, man. I appreciate you really coming on. This was fun. And rest assured, I will be bothering you again at some point in the future. And I will be bothering you as well as the business podcast keeps getting bigger and bigger. So I'm very, very happy to have been here to talk some hoops and just chop it up for a little bit. It's always fun. Thanks again, TJ. Take care. Have a good one, man. Olivia, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Hardwood Knox podcast to talk some Oklahoma City Thunder with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about it. Um, look, the Thunder have a lot to talk about. Uh, they And I don't say this as a joke, but like there were moments where I just forgot who was on their roster because of how much movement there was uh, over the offseason so far for them. And so... I think my first question to you has to be is just what is, you know, settling in, looking like zooming out and looking at the whirlwind of transactions and movements that happened. What was your you know, general impression of the offseason, the overarching sentiment that you, you take away from it? Um, maybe something you particularly liked or something you thought was imperfect, just just zooming out and kind of giving us a, an overview of what you thought about what they did. Yeah, um, it's literally my job to cover the Thunder, and I, I still can't keep up with who all the <laughs> They have like 20 players on the roster right now, and half of them I've never even heard of before. So it's been a pretty crazy offseason. But I think on the whole, um, my general opinion is that it was positive. I think that we got a really good return on Schroeder and Adams and pretty good on Paul. I think that Thunder fans have gotten a little bit greedy just because <laughs> Sam Presley is so good at what he does that we just like expect to get, you know, five first round picks for Chris Paul, which really isn't realistic. So if we are being realistic, I think what we got for those players was really good. I was most impressed by um, the Adams trade. I was really surprised by the return that they got. I thought that um, they would have a hard time trading Adams just because of the size of his contract mm -hmm. and kind of his skill set being limited for the way that the NBA is trending. But we got really great return from the Pelicans and the Pelicans even signed him to a two-year extension. So that was really uh, probably the trade that impressed me the most um, from Sam Presti. Yeah, that one, that one really surprised me. They didn't have to get a first round pick and then to not have to take back Eric Bledsoe in that deal kind of yeah. felt like a stroke of genius <laughs> for them. And then George Hill uh, is someone that you're not going to get high value for him, but if they wanted to move him again, like he's easier to move than Eric Bledsoe, which is why it's big. And just the sheer volume of first-round picks they have now, what is actually most interesting about it to me is so they have a zillion first-round picks between now and 2026, and yet they don't feel like they're overloaded in any one class. Like they're not, they don't have four first-round picks in 2022 or 2021. And with the, you know, when they moved green 
to um, Philly and they got the you know 2025 first round pick. I think it was like that just seems smart. Where it's like get this distant asset because you're you're so like inundated with all these first round picks at the moment. And I'm wondering if that's maybe why they actually didn't get more for taking on Horford's contract because I still viewed Green as an asset. And when you look at it as giving up him and only getting one first round pick and Horford back, I'm like that was. I think that was the move that made me the most uncomfortable, which is to say it wasn't really that uncomfortable, except when you're looking at it through the lens of, well, now they have this, like, you know, Philly should still be good, but, like, what if they're not um, down the line? Like, I think that ends up being a fairly huge deal because you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you have to deal um, all these picks because you're in a roster spot crunch because you have a trillion of them in any given year. Right, exactly. And I think it just – it. It's a really smart move. It's very strategic because it opens up so many possibilities. It's The Thunder are in a really unique position right now where they don't have to commit to one certain pathway because they have you know picks ranging all the way up until 2027. Um, and they can kind of make decisions as they go depending on what happens this season and next season. If things are going really well, they can maybe leverage some of the future picks to do something now. Or they can kind of wait it out and see what the draft classes are going to be like in the future. So I think that we're in a really, really good position, even though we're about to be really, really bad this season. <laughs> <laughs> Is there like an element of um, why now to this, where I think a lot of people expected the teardown to come immediately after, like the full-on teardown to come after the the Westbrook and Paul George trades, or maybe like towards midseason last year? Was it you know purely because... Uh, that Chris Paul's contract was viewed like as a net negative last year. And now you turn around and get actual value for it. So the timing was just right. Um, do you think it was a matter of, they kind of looked at, um, I don't, I don't want to say tanking, but like organic badness as being a market inefficiency right now in a Western conference, where I think as it stands, OKC is probably the only team that identifies itself behind the scenes as, Hey, we're not going to make the playoffs or we're not necessarily aiming for, the play-in tournament. And so there's value in them just being bad now because no one else is trying to be. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that it, the th- like I think that it was in the back of their minds at the start of last season that this is something that was going to happen either this season or next season. And I think what really changed that was Chris Paul and how much better I think that he was than we expected he would he would be mm-hmm. and how much value he would get from him and that spilled over to other people on the team as well so Dennis Schroeder as well at the time that we traded him now had probably the highest trade value that he would ever have so I think that I think they made a decision midseason to continue to push and to get the maximum return and not head into this tanking season with a lot of large contracts and a lot of money on the books that they won't be able to flip later it does seem and like you know other teams in i won't say similar situation because they've been bad for longer but if you look at cleveland if you look at new york like they don't necessarily have that franchise north star and it seems that oklahoma city has decided like that's shea gilgis alexander and so there's i think there's been talk about that um, so going into this season, like, you know, the first two years, like he played with other really good veterans around him. And while he still has um, some there, like the, the supporting cast just might be super transient at this point. So what is it that the team is going to be looking for him from next year? I know there's been a lot of talk about him improving his defense. And, you know, you can speak to this better than I can. Maybe they're just planning on saddling him with like more bigger wing assignments. Uh, but I also, as I mentioned to you, like it does seem just given their personnel now specifically and then how poor the offense was last year when he was on the floor without Chris Paul, that they mm-hmm. probably need him to develop as a half court initiator and even off the dribble three point shooter just as much, if not more. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that the number one priority for SGA going into the season is being the primary ball handler, the primary ball handler, playing point guard, creating his own shots, um, kind of, you know, doing things on his own now that he doesn't have Schroeder and Chris Paul to facilitate for him. So that's going to be a huge thing for him and not just creating shots for himself, but facilitating his teammates as well. And that's not something that he has had to do before. And there were instances last season when Chris Paul or Dennis Schroeder would be out and he would play point guard and it didn't really go as well as we all hoped it would. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he was kind of like thrown into that position without a lot of preparation I guess and so I think with that being the primary goal of the season and him getting a lot of experience doing that I think he'll be better I think he's up to the challenge um, I do think just like innately as a player he's a very good shooter he's has very good ball handling skills I actually think that his defense is pretty good considering his his size and I think that is something that they want him to build on um, now that Chris Paul is not there now that Schroeder's not there he's got to take on some bigger defensive assignments I think obviously Lou Dort gets you know, the number one assignment, but Shea's really got to step up and guard, you know, some bigger, um, bigger players as well. Is there anything that you really liked or were surprised about watching him last year since it was his first season in Oklahoma City, just relative to to his game? He would just have these moments where he would just have like these otherworldly games where it was kind of like watching him become a superstar in real time. And it, you know, it wasn't always like that. Like he definitely has some issues and there was definitely, um, some youngness showing in that game seven against Houston for SGA. But just like throughout the season, he would have these moments where you could just were like, this guy is going to be an all-star. This guy's going to take over the league one day. And I just want more of that. And I feel like this is a really good season for him to do that just because, you know, it's kind of all the focus is on him. The offense is centered around him. I hope he really takes off and takes on that role um, full-heartedly, but not too well that we win a lot of games. So. <laughs> All the games by one point, that's fine. <laughs> uh, he's, I, I think a lot of people are skeptical on his ability to maybe be like the lead man for an offense, but just, you know, for me, who's choppering in for like only like a, a game at, at a time, his first right. two years in the league, like his pick and roll IQ just seems to be um, the pay, like the change of pace that he can go with in there and navigate traffic. He cut down on his turnovers in the pick and roll from his rookie to sophomore season. Like that feels like good evidence to be like, hey, maybe this guy can be the the engine for an entire offense. Um, the one thing maybe they need to do, and perhaps they have it now, I would probably say no, but that's something to just look forward to is can you just make sure you're surrounding him with a bunch of shooting because that opens so much more options for him. But I would think that just looking at that, um, that it has to be super encouraging because – uh, it feels like he's been in the league longer, maybe because he was like on that Clippers team that made the playoffs and then he was traded and now the Thunder are like overturning their identity again. But to have that uh, much improvement from year one to year two and then again to still just be coming out of year two, I feel like seems like a fairly big deal. Yeah, it's a lot to ask from a player that young. But like I said, I think he's up to it. And I think he's known since he came to Oklahoma City that this would be what his role would be in OKC, to be the franchise player, to be... Um, our North Star, as you said. So I think he's been preparing for it. He's ready. I'm excited. And hopefully he stays among the best dressed in the league. So that's that's always fun yeah. that he brings that little flair. The, <laughs> yeah, the one of my favorite things about uh, the Thunder's offseason was like there was this coaching search tumult for like over a month, like between all these different teams in the NBA, and the Thunder were just like kind of off to the shadows. 
chilling. And then they make a hire that I think, you know, from people who are 5,000 feet removed from the situation just didn't seem coming. So I'm curious. Well, I guess we should start here because I actually just before the start of the podcast, um, how are we, we are pronouncing it, Mark Degnault, like as the thunder sent out, or are we going with the, with the French pronunciation? I think we're sticking with Mark uh, Degnault. That's how he pronounces it. That's how Presti pronounces it. So I guess we'll go with that. Um, I've just been calling him Mark the Shark because he's here. What was your overall impression of that hire? Were you as sort of taken aback by maybe not the line of thinking from the Thunder there, but like their ultimate choice as everybody else? Um, so I, w- I will say I wasn't expecting him specifically, but I w- was expecting them to hire someone unexpected, if that makes sense. Because right. that's just the way that Sa- Sam Presti is. He finds these people you know, just that no one's thinking about that are in like the far corners of the world. And he just zeroes in on them. And he picks the person that he thinks will be the best for the franchise, regardless of what, you know, the media is saying, what fans think would be the best hire, etc. So I was expecting someone unexpected. Um, but after, you know, talk, going to the media availability with Dagnold and kind of talking to the other players about what they thought about him as a coach, I think that he's a really good player development coach. So he coached our G league team for five years and then came up to coach as an assistant for the thunder last season. And so he has a really um, keen ability to develop young players. And I also think that he has a really good relationship with the players. Almost every single player we've talked to so far at media availability has mentioned that um, Dagnault really emphasizes personal relationships with the players and getting to know them and having that like kind of one-on-one um, feel with every single one of the players and they seem real the players seem really receptive to that and very excited about having him as a coach they you know are all really excited for him for getting the call up and I think on the whole um, it's going to be kind of a learning process for both him and the players at the same time but I think if he takes these big strides while we're rebuilding he could be a long-term fixture for the Thunder um, but it really all just depends on how these next couple seasons go. I've always kind of thought if that was an underrated aspect of coaching choices where mm-hmm. maybe like some sentiments might suggest that you should go with a more experienced coach to lead what's going to wind up being a young group, or is it better to get someone like Dagnolt who's 35 and in theory it's easier to relate to you know, 23, 25-year-olds when you're 35 as opposed to 55-year-old Billy Donovan and then just lean on veterans in the locker room to take care of the rest? Uh, it's something I've thought about before, like not much, but I that makes it, if he's so good at relating to players now, that makes it seem like, and then being in the G League definitely had to help with that like aspect of the coaching too. So that like the, the train of thought here seems to be really spot on for what the Thunder are trying to do. Exactly. And I don't think that, you know, like a Doc Rivers or a D'Antoni would be the right fit right now for the Thunder with where with where they are. And I don't think any of those coaches want to coach the Thunder right now, understandably. So I think it was a perfect hire. Um, Sam Presti really believes in him. He's been around the franchise for a long time. Um, so I think he's really just aligns with the direction the Thunder are going. Uh, Doc Rivers' voice sounds like blown out speakers now. Could you imagine him coaching like a really young team for a year and then what it might sound like after that? <laughs> Exactly. Um, have you, I know, you know, I feel like they, uh, this is championed about almost every new or definitely young coach, but the, you know, Dagno comes from the pace and space mold. Is there anything that you can tell us about, like, just from a sense of how you think the Thunder are going to play or what their identity is going to be under him on the floor? Oh man, that's a difficult question. It's so hard to say just because, first of all, I don't even think this current roster that we have right now 
will be the, you know, the roster throughout the entire season. And all these moving pieces going in and out are really going to be a challenge for Dagnall and how he's going to kind of have some semblance of consistency throughout the season. Um, so it's really hard to say. Um, I think just because well, you could go either way. You could say that because they have younger players, they could kind of play a faster offense, but also they're more inexperienced players. So maybe like a more calculated approach would be better. I honestly don't know. I think it'll it'll really depend on who's on the roster. But I think he'll stick to his pace and space, but we'll see. Now, as you mentioned, this roster is it's just invariably going to change, and it, it's continually happening happen on a whim. Like we can bet it'll happen before the I think the trade deadlines at the end of March this year, but it feels like it could just happen at any moment. Looking at this roster long term, though, who's the second most in, important player behind Shea Gilgis Alexander? I'm assuming it's Darius Baisley or um, Alexei Pokashevsky, but I'm honestly like I feel like you could probably make an argument for one or two other guys as well. Yeah, I think I think we're talking about the short term, long term, <laughs> and, it, and it's Darius Baisley. Um, he's you know kind of like a he's a ready now player. Um, he took really, really, really big strides and made huge improvements last season, especially in the bubble. And if he can come into this season picking up where he left off, um, that's going to be phenomenal for the Thunder, and that definitely makes him you know the second the second best player, the second piece for the Thunder. Um, Pokushevsky, I feel like, is more of a long-term project. He's very young. Um, he was the youngest player uh, available in the draft, and I think several people have said this to describe him. He has probably the lowest floor and highest ceiling. He really could go either way, and I think it's going to be more of a long-term project. I think he'll play a little bit in um, the G League before he really makes an impact for the Thunder. And so do you think that's where he spends most of his time then this upcoming season? Yeah, I do. Um, we talked to him yesterday. He's a little sweetheart, but he's just <laughs> so young. And so, you know, he seems really willing to work and put in the work and the time and willing to learn. But he is just, you know, very, he's very young. And I think that he's going to have to adjust to the NBA. The biggest thing, obviously, is his size. Um, he knows that he's working on it. He's putting putting on weight, but you can't roll him out at center um, on opening day for sure. <laughs> yeah. And that was like the pick in the draft where if you're the Hawks and you're holding on to like the Thunder's 2022 first, that's um, turns into two seconds. If it doesn't convey, uh, you had to know in that moment that you weren't getting that first round pick because it was like, Oh, the Thunder are planning on like going through this rebuild for, for quite some time. If they're taking this 18 year old kid who I think some people were even questioning whether he was going to come over to the States at all this year. Right, exactly. So he just has a lot of unknowns. Um, I think like in like the best case scenario, dare I say, he's an up and coming Kevin Durant just with his size and his frame. But that's obviously like the upper upper ceiling level of him. But I mean, if he can get bigger, maybe he could be more like a Jokic where he can play center, but he can also shoot. So there's just a lot of variability for him as a player. Um, it really could go either way, but I will say that he's someone that the Thunder didn't land on by accident. They moved up in the draft to specifically get Pokushevsky, and I, that tells me that they see something in him that they specifically want going forward, or they saw an opportunity where they can afford to take the risk because they know that we're not contending this season. So overall, I think you know it's fine, but we'll have to see what happens with him. Yeah, there's there was criticism where a lot of people thought it was a reach, and I'm one not a draft nick, so like a lot of these guys, I'm only looking at after the draft. But two, I don't know that you can make like to me too big of a reach 
um, when you're outside the lottery. Like they were, that was pick number 17. At the end of the day, what is pick number 17 supposed to turn into? Um, and it's not like, you know, they drafted someone who wasn't considered an, an NBA prospect in that spot. So I, I honestly, we obviously don't know how it's going to turn out, but I actually like for teams outside the lottery specifically, and maybe even later on in the lottery, like I appreciate these types of big swings. Yeah. And Sam Presti, he's, I mean, we all know he's got a pretty great track record in the draft and he has gambled on young players like this before. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. It worked out really well with Darius Baisley uh, the year before. It didn't work out that well with Terrence Ferguson. So, you know, I think that I have confidence in Presti in his decisions. So I think it'll be good. The what, So for Darius Baisley specifically, like what role like do you see from him this year? Or do you, do you buy into the three-point shooting he showed in the bubble, he was, I think it was over 46% in those final uh, eight games that the Thunder played. And then he was at 50% in the playoffs. And the volume was like, you know, it wasn't Davis Bertans volume, but it was like actual volume. So do you buy into that? Do you view him? Do you think he starts right away for this team? Like what is, what are just your impressions of him or what is the team expecting from him going into this year? Um, I do think he starts, and I do think that the Thunder are expecting him to be kind of their second option, like we talked about earlier. So the more playing time and the more responsibility that he can get, and the earlier in the season that that happens, I think that's best for him long term. Um, I think the biggest thing that they're going to be looking forward to him to him doing, which you kind of touched on, is consistency. So that really great volume of three-point shooting that happened at the end of the season, there were glimmers and spots of that throughout the regular season but it was never really consistent where he could be like a reliable knockdown shooter so mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing for him is consistency and then uh just size and defense and you know being able to to protect the rim and things like that um which just comes with you know getting bigger he's also super young um but I think he's been working on uh, getting bigger so hopefully that he has um some more defensive capabilities this season does he have like more to plumb on offense than like uh, someone who's going to, and this isn't like a bad thing if this is what he is, but you know, it seems like a lot of his or most of his opportunities are going to come within the, the flow of the offense, which I think, you know, when you have Chris Paul on your team, like that's, and Dennis Schroeder yeah. and Shea Gilles Alexander, that's going to happen. But 70% of his offensive possessions were either spot ups or in transition. Does he have like, um, do you view him as more of like a plug and play offensive option? Do you see like someone who has more of a floor game or that they might try and expand his role to generate his own offense? Or has he kind of like already been uh, like, is that just going to be his his niche where he's like playing off of everybody else? I think that's kind of his niche. I think he's going to be more of a plug and play player, but I don't think that's, I mean, like you said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you can't have everyone on the team being someone who, who creates shots. Right. So I think that I think that is his niche, and I think that pairs really well with Shea Gildas Alexander, like you said. So I think they could be a good combo between the two of them. Um, but yeah, I I don't think that he's going to be you know a create your shot, own shot kind of player. But I mean, and those guys are just easier to have on the roster in general because they don't dictate how you flesh out the rest of it. Like they can just fit with everybody else. Yeah, um, and I think. Oh, sorry. Go uh, ahead. Just one more thing. I think. He's so Darius Baisley is so young, but also so um, motivated to learn. Um, and I think that one thing that's going to be different for him this season is not having Chris Paul to kind of be that mentor, to kind of be that guy that's on him to you know live up to his potential. And so I'm hoping that SGA kind of takes on that role for the Thunder and can really motivate these young guys um, to 
play beyond their potential because I think Chris Paul did a great job of that with Darius Baisley and obviously with Lou Dort. Um, so that'll be a big part for Darius Baisley this season as well. Kind of going the complete opposite direction um, for players that don't feel necessarily long for this roster. Uh, the three that stand out with divergent timelines are George Hill, Trevor Ariza, and Al Horford. Do you have a sense of like what the end game is going to be for them? Like, are are they so transient where you just assume that you know probably Hill and Ariza specifically, just the way their contracts work out, that they're going to be gone by the trade deadline, even if it's like a matter of of a buyout um, in the interim, however the long with the team, do you see them getting like actual playing time and, you know, including Horford into that as well? Yeah. So it's a difficult position for the Thunder because you want to develop your young talent. You want to play those players as much as you can. But at the same time, if you want to get a return on Hill or Ariza or Horford, you have to play them to show a potentially contending team that Al Horford is the missing piece that they need. <laughs> to win a championship. So that's a, a delicate balance that the Thunder are going to have to uh, figure out how to, how to do that. I kind of think that, um, I kind of think that Hill and Horford will have spots in the starting lineup. And, but I do not think that they will be there long-term. So I think that Hill and Ariza probably get flipped before the deadline. Horford might be a little bit more challenging, but if you can show that he's still a valuable player that a contending team might want, I think it's plausible that he could also be flipped before the deadline. Yeah, I mean, they're the the Thunder like masters of that apparently. After uh, you know, the talk being that they were going to need to attach something to move Chris Paul before last season, and then like we mentioned at the top of the podcast, they trade him for actual value. And the thing with Horford too is like he was viewed as like a top twenty, top twenty five player heading into last year, and so you know, you look at his age, sort of the injury problems that he dealt with last season you don't necessarily want to get into him for you know the three years and I think he has 68 million guaranteed and 81 million total um at the same time if he's like playing you know a ton of center like and doesn't have to play alongside like another traditional big for too long you know if you're in lineups where Darius Baisley's your four and there's just like enough spacing around him I feel like there's actually a better than advertised chance the Thunder do end up rebooting his value not to the point where they're going to get necessarily value for him in return but where another team might come calling and they're not asking for an asset to come with him. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. And I think just at the end of the day, like obviously picks are great and obviously Sam Presti loves his, his draft picks, <laughs> but also just getting that contract off of our books. However, we manage to do that. Cause right now I think like the thunder, if you take out, you know, the larger contracts, they've got like 40 million on the books or something ridiculous like that and like most of that is going towards these bigger players and they've got like 10 players that only account for like 15 million dollars or something right. absolutely ridiculous like that and so i think you know that's more of the the big picture is keeping those spaces open on the books to re-sign sga but also to get you know a larger name all-star type player when the time comes for that which is not now in the long term, but we don't want to have Horford's contract on the books when it comes time for that. Right. He's like the, like when you're looking at even just like expensive salary though, he's really the only long-term expensive salary they have because of George Hill's non-guarantee next year. Exactly. It's crazy. Uh, this, this is, yeah, they've really cleared the deck there. I'm just like, they're, they're just interesting by virtue of all the options in front of them. Exactly. Um, so 
what's your what's still the biggest concern for this roster whether you're looking at the current construction if you don't expect them maybe to shake it up you know mid-season before the offseason um is it you know is it oversimplifying it to say like they don't have that clear-cut floor general and maybe they're going to be too reliant on sga is it sort of the limited amount of i'll say proven two-way wings because that could still be you know maybe basley's more of a big or maybe dort just you know hits more of his threes this year um is are we worried about sam presti drowning in all the first round picks that he has acquired Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) there's a lot of a lot of unknowns and that's probably the most concerning thing um is just not knowing what's going to happen um but i think this is going to sound crazy but i think like the roster as currently constructed today we're still too good so we need (laughs) to be less good um and that means you know trading ariza horford hill whatever combination of those things. But I think right now this team is still too good for, for what I would like it to be. Um, and then the other thing that kind of concerns me long-term is that yes, we're clearing the books. Yes, we are, you know, really focusing on a couple of players, but what has happened as a result of that is our whole roster is super young. And yeah. so going forward, we, I think we'll need a player like a Chris Paul type player to come and kind of be the the anchor for the team. And I hope that SGA can be that type of person, but I think you really need someone who's a little bit more of a veteran, more experienced in the league, because we are talking about SGA becoming the leader for this team, but also keep in mind, like you said, it's only his third year in the NBA. So he doesn't really have that, I think, presence and leadership that uh, a player like Chris Paul would have. So I'm most concerned about just how young our team is, but I think that will change going forward. And then just not knowing um what trades are going to happen and if our team is going to really be bad enough for how bad we need to be <laughs> yeah they, i would i think i would agree with you at least when we're looking at the top of the roster like if they weren't to make any moves for the rest of the season there's a like a few teams that i would look at and be like there's a strong in the west and there's a strong chance that okc is better than them which i guess would sort of lead me like into this question when you're i mean maybe even i know Starting lineups are, and I don't even think I had this written down in the outline I sent you, so I apologize, but like starting lineups have become arbitrary, but this might be one of the teams where it's really interesting because of the balance they have to strike between development and then like they do have these veterans on the team that are going to want to play. So do you, what do you, like, what do you think their starting five ends up being at the start of the season? I think at the start of the season, it's going to be SGA, Dort, Hill, Baisley, and Horford. And I think that lineup will start and end the games. But what's going to happen in the middle is just going to be an absolute (laughs) disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Some mess of just putting in random players and not, they're not random. They, they're NBA players, but you know, just really weird combinations of really young players and just kind of seeing what works, but also getting them the experience that they need. So that's kind of how I, how I see them kind of towing that line between getting Horford and Hill the minutes that they need, but also getting young players the experience that they need. It's just, that's kind of how I think it'll go, but I think, I don't know. It all obviously all depends on how the roster changes throughout the season as well. <clears throat> is there like, given the weirdness that's going to happen for the in-between lineups, is there like maybe one that you're hoping they just test out that might be on the, the quirkier side? I really like um, Teo Maldon. I think that he, so he's, if, I guess I'll explain for, for those of you who are, <laughs> are not following the Thunder. Um, he's this guy from France who is like t- described as um, Tony Parker's protege. 
And he's like trained under Tony Parker. Tony Parker really loves him. He's like a pretty talented guard, been playing in France. Um, it was a really good pick for the Thunder um, in the second round that he was still available. So I think that he could be an exciting piece and possibly uh, like long term, maybe they could recreate kind of the the three guard lineup that they had versus what yeah, like a three, four guard lineup that they had at the end of last season and instead have um, Maldon in there instead of Hill. And I think that could be interesting, but it depends. I haven't seen him play yet, so I don't know. Do you think that they'll go back to, I know they did this like intermittently last year. Um, Like we'll see, and especially because I feel like the backup five rotation is pretty up in the air. If we don't think that Pokashevsky is going to spend a lot of time with the team. Do we see like Baisley at the five this year a bunch? Yeah, I think so. Um, And that's why I'm hoping that he's, you know, gotten bigger, put on some weight, gotten stronger. Um, (laughs) I think he'll be better in that in that role um, that way. But yeah, I do think we see him at center as well as power forward. Uh, that's I'm an endless lobbyer for small ball lineup. So that's what that's what I want to see from them this season. Oh, it's gonna be really small. It's just going to be SGA, Dort, Maldon, Baisley, <laughs> George Hill. <laughs> just that's that's it. <laughs> I will be absolutely here for that. So this is I feel like this is an unfair question for this team specifically, but what's like a realistic win total and like Western Conference standings finish for this team? And it was like I just as a background for the listeners, I said to Olivia, you could interpret this however you want, like looking at if the roster stays together, if they shake it up, or you could maybe you could even view it as like, what are the Thunder like going to aim for? Like, what is their ideal finish to the season at this point, um, given that they're so entrenched in the early stages of this rebuild? Um, okay, so this is kind of a long answer. That's okay. So for me personally, I was very much not about tanking and about the rebuild. I understand the necessity of it. I understand why it's strategic and why it works and why if done properly, it doesn't necessarily relegate you to 10 years of being terrible. So that's the biggest thing. And I think Sam Presti knows this. So we're a small market team in Oklahoma City. Just the fact that we are tanking this one season has already angered so many fans who just or they're casuals. They don't understand the the strategicness of tanking. But I don't think that Sam Presti can afford like ten years of being bad. <laughs> so what what needs to happen is I think they just need to commit full full heartedly to this tank and be as bad as they possibly can. And we're talking like third worst in in the league, so they can get their lottery pick because next season's draft class is phenomenal, way better than this year's um, draft class. And so I think. I think they should just really commit to it and be awful this season and then work their way back up the next couple of seasons. But I think if they commit to that and they get um, a lottery pick this season, so maybe like, I don't know, is that like 20, 20 wins? I don't know if that's enough to get you third worst in the NBA. There's some other teams that are also um, tanking. So we'll have to see exactly how many wins that is. But I think that should be the goal just because if you're going to tank, you just commit, do it properly. If you halfway, you end up like the Knicks or you end up like Cleveland. And we just can't, can't do that in Oklahoma city, in my opinion. Yeah, I think 20. So if they got 20 wins this year, that would be a 23 win equivalent. I would say that's right up there. I like that you accounted, you know, the Knicks are just going to be awful. So like you have to, they're probably not going to outbad the Knicks. Uh, but I feel like they have an opportunity. Maybe Cleveland would be the only other team that I look at and say, um, unless they're going to play Kevin Love like a ton and not move him, uh, I guess the Pistons could be there. But bottom three feels realistic, and so. But I guess that's like predicated on we're probably assuming that two of Hill, Horford, and Ariza are just right. gone by the trade deadline. Then, right? 
exactly. And that that's what needs to happen, in my opinion. Um, there's so many good players available in next year's draft, including Kate Cunningham from Oklahoma State, um, Evan Mobley from my um, alma mater, USC. So those are two players that I would love it if the Thunder got them, but they've got to be really bad to get there. <laughs> um, this is a super big question, but... Uh, and I, you kind of touched on it, but like when you look at it right now, it feels like the Thunder are like, no, this isn't, they're not aiming to have this be like a 10 year rebuild. And, you know, after next season, Shea Gilgis Alexander is going to be extension eligible. So a, a reinvestment in their own, uh, players is, is coming. Um, is there a scenario though, where the process gets maybe more expedited? Because I feel like they've at least sent the message where the next two to three years are just not going to be especially pretty, but like what happens if, you know, Shea, as you mentioned, what if he's too good for them to be so bad this year where he enters the all-star conversation, they're sitting on all this draft equity. Um, maybe there's a star that becomes available. I'm not saying an aging one over the off season, but is there a scenario in which maybe they look to consolidate some of their equity to accelerate this timeline? Or do you really think it's going to end up staying on the, the more gradual course? So I, I kind of think it's already pretty expedited. I think that two to three years is not the worst thing. I think that's actually pretty good. Um, but if there was a situation where just like SGA shows out and he's just all-star level SGA, I think what they're more likely to do is who will still be bad this season, obviously, and then take a draft pick next season to someone who they can win with now, someone who's ready to play now, not someone that they have to invest in like Poku or Darius Baisley. And after that, I don't. I just don't see them really packaging all of their future to get an all like another star to play with SGA mm-hmm. once from now. Um, but I think it might mean them packaging more of their assets to you know do more in the draft or um, packaging those twenty twenty sevens, the really far away stuff, to get someone decent for SGA. But I don't really see that happening because I think that Sam Presti's plans are are much more long-term. And I think that if he sticks with that uh, plan as it is right now, I think the return will be better than one really good season of SGA and someone else. Uh, is there anything else that I missed about this team? I'm actually surprised at how quickly we went through it all. Uh, maybe I was pushing the pace a little too quickly, but is there something that's undercovered or underrepresented about this team? Any player that we didn't touch on too much that you have strong feelings about? Do you have any Ty Jerome hot takes or something? <laughs> Well, I feel I feel like we didn't talk enough about Lou Dort and how important he's going to be to the Thunder. And I almost honestly feel like we can never talk enough about how great Lou Dort is. It's just, I don't know, he's just phenomenal. His whole story from being undrafted to hitting seven threes in a game seven is just <laughs> chef's kiss. Um, but I think that, yes, Baisley is really important and he'll probably be the second, the second option. But I think that... Lou Dory, he's going to be coming up. He's coming for that defensive player of the year. I think he could be like Andre Robertson, except better at shooting, but just like right there in that depoy conversation. And so that's what I hope for, for Lou Dory this season is that even if we as a team aren't that great, that he can really um, show off his defense. I don't want to be in a position that where we're relying on Lou Dory to hit his threes because that seems risky. <laughs> That was, I have no emotional investment in the Thunder, and that was stressful for me watching yeah. that. Um, the, the games that the six games that uh, he was, he averaged like 8.3 uh, three point attempts per game over the final six games of, of that series. And like just the wild swings where, oh, he had an O of nine night, but 
He had uh, the, the six of 12 night. And then it's like, he was hitting them at the beginning. I can't, if this was like game two, maybe he was hitting them at the beginning, but not at the end or whatever it was. So like, that was stressful for me. So I can only imagine like what it's like for a Thunder fan having to watch those moments. Yeah, it was stressful, but also fun. And I, this season, I'm totally fine if Ludort wants jack up threes. That's okay. But as long as he's still, you know, making those defensive um, defensive steps and growing in that, because he really does have the potential to be one of the best defenders in the league. And I know that there are probably people that are listening to this right now that don't watch the Thunder that are like, what is this girl talking about? She's a homer. But I, I swear to you, it is true. He has... You know, he's really great defensive instincts and can really guard the best player on any team, in my opinion. And so I think that he's going to be someone to watch this season as well. Yeah, he's just so strong. Uh, (laughs) I also don't think I acknowledged how young he was. Like, I just, he's aged, he's 21 right now, he'll turn 22 in April. Like, that's still pretty young. What is, what do you envision for him on offense, though? Like, I feel, you know, it's like the conversation with Ben Simmons. Like, imagine how good he could be if he, could right. shoot and it's like well that's not really a small thing that we can just imagine so what is his like what are other things he can do on offense is this like a, is he strong enough to where maybe you use him as a just a, a smaller screener and he's diving towards the basset do you like his finishing at the rim do you see someone who's going to be able to attack closeouts when they're giving him um just a ton of space where he can get into the lane mm-hmm. yeah so i think that last season um his like discrepancy between offense and defense really showed partly because there are just so many other people that were on the team last year that were better shooters than he was. So there's other options. Um, But now with this, this Thunder team as constructed, I feel like he could take on a larger offensive role, but to me, and they didn't really use him this way last season. I think that that means finishing around the rim. And I think that's probably the best place for him. Like you said, he's a, he's a big guy. He's like not very tall, but he's like wide, like a brick wall. And I think that that could be, he could use that to his, his advantage um, kind of like um, a Russell Westbrook or someone who just kind of bullies their way to the rim. Well, Olivia, this was fantastic. Thank you um, so much for coming on and uh, doing a deep dive into the thunder with me. If you guys are not following Olivia on Twitter, remedy that immediately. She's at Olivia Punchall. That's at O-L-I-V-I-A-P-A-N-C-H-A-L. She is a senior writer and co-host of the Crossbolts con- uh, podcast. Excuse me, I can't talk today for, for Daily Thunder. So again, just follow her on Twitter. And once more, Olivia, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.